0: Hey, everybody. We are back. Hello, my fellow Westorians. It is our first Saturday live stream in, well, a little while, a few months, days, weeks, add it all together. You get some number. It might be accurate. And look, we have Sean back. Hi, Sean. Good to see you. It's great to be here. It's awesome. Yeah, right? And you know... I have to, we have to all give you congratulations on your engagement. Thank you. Sean thank you. is engaged. Yay. engaged to Rita. Rita of the, in the, Maine, the who is our live studio audience, <laughs> <laughs> all the way from Denver. So, congrats and welcome our very, very special guest from Insider Magazine. And a friend of ours. We're gonna. Have, we're definitely gonna do some bantering today because we all know each other. and we have a great time together. <laughs> That's part of what we're looking forward to. But we also have exciting things to talk about. Super fun, cool book that Kim wrote. So, hello, Kim Renfro. Welcome to History of Westeros.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you guys.
0: Cool. Yeah. Well, we're it's lovely to have
1: Saturday. You.
0: Tell us briefly, if you can. Now, I know this is our. This is partially in your book already. But if you could give everyone maybe a brief. Uh, origin story like how you got into game of thrones a song of ice and fire and all that because we all love origin stories how you got your superpowers yeah like was it was it <laughs> was it a toxic nuclear accident or a radioactive cat renfro all, or a... <laughs> all of the above okay.
1: all of the above um yeah i'll i'll try and keep this brief because i do feel like it's kind of a long saga sometimes but uh so I I was first told about a song rise and fire slash game of Thrones in like early 2011. So it was like right when HBO was ramping up um, promotion for the new show. And I was like at a party talking to some bros about like Lord of the Rings. And they were like, Oh my God, if you love Lord of the Rings, like you have to watch this new show. It's based on these books that are so good. Um, so I went and I like watched the pilot episode when it came out. I like Tora did it on my crappy Dell laptop. I'm sorry, HBO. I was a college student who was not (laughs) paying for television. Um, And I like that first episode hooked me. And I was like, okay, if these are books, I'm obviously just going to go and read all these books right now. Why on earth would I like wait for seasons of this show to unfold? So I went, read all the books. I was obsessed with them. Um, And this was right around the same time that I first got a Reddit account. So I, of course, like found the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Um, and just was like devouring everything that I could about the show, like, or about the books and the show, but mostly the books, like all of the fan theories. And, you know, that's where I first learned about R plus L equals J because of like a Reddit post and stuff. Um, and so then jump forward to 2014, I was graduating college and I got, I, I needed a new job. So I got placed as a temp at this company called business insider, which at the time was like a decent, but like still pretty small, uh, digital media company. And so I was an office assistant, just like stalking the kitchens and all that jazz. And, uh, I started talking one day to one of the editors about like the latest episode of game of Thrones. And like 20 minutes later, he was like, why do you
2: know so much? about (laughs)
1: this?" (laughs) I was like going down like so many rabbit holes of like theories and stuff that they had changed. And, uh, yeah. So this editor told me that they didn't have anyone on staff who was, uh, like writing about the show at the moment, even though it was so popular. And so, yeah, I started writing like weekly articles about Game of Thrones and then those were doing well. And I wound up turning that into a full-time job. So I was able to transfer departments and I became a full-time entertainment reporter in 2015 and Game of Thrones was like my bread and butter.
0: That's very cool. I mean, that's very similar to how, why we're here and where we are, which is just, we we're obsessed with (laughs) Song of Us and Fire, Game of Thrones and obsession plus effort. Hey, it takes you places sometimes if you're, if you have a little bit thrown in. So just real quick, as an aside, is Business Insider, did that become Insider or what's the relationship with that as far as corporate structure? Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. So it's still the same company, but they wound up, Business Insider uh, wound up Basically, creating a sister site that's just called Insider. And that's where, like, more of the general lifestyle news lives. And so that's where they kind of put all of the entertainment. Culture stuff because what happened was people started being like, Why am I reading Game of Thrones fan theory articles on businessinsider.com? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah.
0: That is a little odd. Yeah. Hey, uh... <laughs> what does
1: this have to do with business? So, <laughs> yeah. So it's to
3: still sell like... books.
1: <laughs>
3: I know. Now you get toothpaste. I know. T-shirt. <laughs> everything. <laughs> it's, it's yeah.
1: True. Like, literally yeah. everything. This... Yeah. So, yeah, it's still the same company, but just like now there are two different websites. And so okay. I write for Insider.
0: Well, it's, it's I, I've never written a book, but I, we have here written two chapters that were part of Game of Thrones books. And I know that when you write a book, you, f- you have to start off with a lot of knowledge on a subject. But then when you start writing the book, you end up with even more knowledge because you have to do research. And that is something that really stands out about your book, because we covered the show pretty detailed uh, with a lot of depth. And right away in your book, I was like, oh, I didn't know that. And then few uh, pages later, I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. And that really gives momentum. You, you have momentum when you're, when you're reading yeah, like a book. And and you're like, well, what? Are, yeah, that's just tell, exactly like there's 15 chapters left and <laughs> I've already like learned all these things I didn't know. So that just gave me a lot of reading momentum, which is a wonderful thing to have. And
1: Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah. That's right? ideal.
0: <laughs> it's, and that I think a lot of listeners are probably going to be a little surprised because you guys know we're very detail oriented. So when I, when I find details I don't know about, Not only am I like, oh, cool, but I'm a little surprised that I didn't know that (laughs) sometimes a little bit of like I I should have known that. But I didn't. But but honestly, that's not the case with a lot of these, because a lot of your um, anecdotes and things that you unearthed are just uh, a matter of of research or of just people that you have connections to like network that people that we don't know. And I think that's one of the powerful things that you have to offer here is not only are you knowledgeable about the series and obsessed with it like we are. And like so many other great fans, but you have access to certain people that that the rest of us don't. You know, that, like you have, uh, you have did some great interviews over, over your career. You've interviewed some of the actors and showrunners, and that's some of the, some, we wanna talk about that throughout this episode as well. But that's, uh, I think that's really valuable um, because that's among some of the things that I was unaware of were some of the stories from the actors and some from set stories, things like that. And some of this stuff is really interesting, especially in getting into like how the, the show was adapted. That's something that really stood out. Yeah. Me. I think there's like a fine line when talking about a book like this uh, or in a setting like this, where we don't want to like spoil all the secrets <laughs> in your cool <laughs> book because we want people to go read it. But we want to spoil a few of them because, you know, I, I want people to have the same momentum that I picked up when I was reading it. Yeah. Was that similar to you, your experience, Sean? A lot
3: of what you said, but another thought that I had was, do you remember the old Saturday Night Live skit with Chris Farley? when he was like a, a host of like a local <laughs> T V, you yeah. know, public broadcasting. Do you remember show. that time? And he would we... have guests whoever the guest in a light would be his guest. And he'd be like Tom Hanks, be like, do you remember that time when you you danced on the piano keys big? And Tom Hanks would be like, Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. I really liked that. That was good. Do you remember that time? <laughs> 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 and so a lot of your book is like that, you know, and I and I think a lot of fans like that. We won like recount and reshare these moments of the show and so uh, there's like a lot of detail and trivia that even we didn't know but there's a lot of like oh yeah i remember that you know like uh, not only like moments from the show but even like uh cultural moments or whatever
0: yeah 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 that those are the kind of things we've got several questions lined up for you um with regards to like how this the industry was affected by game of thrones because that's something you write about in the book is that well, let's let's let, let you explain that for a minute. How did was you talking about when you were getting started at Business Insider and this was all just building? Take us through a little yeah. bit of the process in, in that metamorphosis or evolution of Game of Thrones to something you were writing about, to how it just kind of took over the entertainment world and changed TV, because that's a, a thing that you capture really well in the book that I wouldn't have been able to speak to very well, for example.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's so interesting that Game of Thrones kind of started just before like this, what is now called like peak TV era. Like it was sort of like part of like the ushering in of this idea that like television is doing cinema level, like production and performances and like writing and all of that. And at so in the last decade, like the way that people watch TV has changed. And I also think the way that people consume writing about television has changed. And that's also, that's because of stuff like what I do in digital media, like in 2011, all of these sort of like blog style sites like Buzzfeed and Business Insider and like all of these digital only uh, publications were like in their very nascent stages of figuring out like what works and what doesn't in terms of like capturing people people's attention online. Um, and so, yeah, for me, it's interesting. Cause when I first started writing about the show, my approach was always like, I had read the books and I was watching the show and I was seeing this like deep gap in knowledge between what was happening on the screen and like what had happened in the books for certain things. Like there were some characters that were just kind of like barely introduced or there were I don't know, like things that were teased that like I knew where that was headed because I had read the books, but obviously someone who was just watching the show hadn't. So I started trying to kind of like bridge that gap of information and be like, okay, I'm, I'm talking more directly to someone who's only watching the show. And I'm like, I'm helping enhance their viewing experience by being like, here are all these things that like you might not have noticed in the episode or that were actually references to all of these other things so that someone could walk away from my article and hopefully feel like they are like smarter about this thing that they love or that they can go and tell their friend, like, Oh my God, did you not like this? I don't know. That was always like my goal. Um, but I think part of that that thing. Um, and I think there are some times when I'm like, Oh my God, I like, I feel responsible for like creating this, trend of being like the craziest game of thrones theory might come true next season and i'm like (laughs) like so like those were articles that i was writing but i was like in 2014 or 2015 i was being like really selective and i was being like okay here's why like clegane bowl is like such a big theory and then like that did wind up happening or like, <laughs> sure I, like I was like, I was talking about, you know, like R plus L equals J and all of like the hints that the show had given us like, this is like actually going to come true. And so I feel like I was being really choosy about like the quality of things and same thing with, with like Reddit posts. Like I would sometimes write up like, Oh, there's like this like really popular theory going around on Reddit, but I had spent so much time on Reddit that I knew the difference between something that was like, high quality analysis that everyone was like really excited and engaging with versus like a shit post that has like (laughs) 17 comments and two upvotes. And like, you know, like that's not something that we should be giving attention to. And yet I think that over the, like over the years, other, like other writers or people just started like assigning out game of Thrones articles to people that didn't really know what they were talking about. And it just like turned into this entire economy of like, clicks and mania around the show that i think was just like it was bananas like yeah. you could literally write you could write anything that had game of thrones in the headline and people would probably click on it um
0: i mean that's that's so, yeah, true. But, in the publishing industry right you put like it's blah, blah blah game of thrones like they just everything they try to tie it to game of thrones and like new tv shows yeah like, oh, it's the next game of thrones
1: yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so it it's interesting that specifically like what I do for a living was I think deeply like I only have this job because of Game of Thrones and I've been able to I've been able to successfully apply that formula to other TV shows and stuff but it's been really interesting to see how competitive it got over just the last like three years it's changed
3: how many can you tell me because I've never been on Reddit so I don't have a good perspective
1: (laughs) how many summer shot. Bless you. Like
0: smart choice, A lot of people are like bad choice Sean. It's very divisive, right? <laughs> variety of opinions on Yeah,
3: I don't snow. I don't mean to have any negative thoughts on Reddit. I just haven't no, yeah. dipped into that yet. But I'm curious how many uh upvotes and comments did Brandon's Night King get? Was that like <laughs> 17 comments and
1: <laughs> Brandon's the Night King. That wow, one was taking that one was taking off on So there's like the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, and then there's the Game of Thrones subreddit, uh, which are two very different lands to live in. Um, Yeah, (laughs) Bran is the the Night King. That is the funniest story because that... So not to like get in the weeds too much, but my... Mm -hmm. So like my routine when I was covering the show was like, you know, I basically worked all weekend leading up to Sunday night because usually thanks to like spoilers or leaks or sometimes like entire episodes coming out, I knew what was going to happen. So I would like pre-write my articles, like spend all Saturday and Sunday pre-writing articles, watch the episodes, spend all of Sunday night, like getting them out and stuff. Monday was usually when I could do interviews. Like that's when HBO made some of like the actors or directors available for interviews. So Wednesday was like my day off like that was when i would finally get to like sleep in (laughs) and just like relax a little bit and i but i would always still be kind of on my phone and like tracking like what people were talking about at work about covering the show because i was very protective of like making sure that we didn't fall into that like crappy clickbaity like realm of coverage and i remember waking up wednesday and it was like there was an editor who was like, "Oh my God, you guys! I think Brand is the Night King." God, <laughs> like, like oh, no. have you like have you seen this? And they like <laughs> dropped in some like other article, and I was just like, "No!" I was like, "I was like, I was like, no, you guys! Like, he's really not. Like, I can write about why he's probably not the Night King, but like, this is my morning off, so like, I'll do it in the afternoon." And they were like, "Oh well, like, we can have the one." We can have one article about like the theory, and then like you can feel free to debunk it later. And I was just like, <laughs> "Oh my god, I don't need like, to
0: later. I can do that." Right all right, right.
1: Yes. yeah. That's... And I like I just like watched it like spin out of control, and really so that probably sense. added to why I just like resented that. To, so, so I have to a to very,
0: no memory of the most recent Con of Thrones*, which was sitting in a panel in the audience, not on the panel, watching you and Sam. And Joe Magician and uh, (laughs) Bookshelf Stud, I think, is up there. Yeah, Michael. And and y'all are, like, working on this thing. Like, we can't see what's happening. Sam is, like, working on a thing. Like, what is going on? What is she doing with her hands up there during this panel? And at the end, y'all raise up this wire that has letters on it and it says brand is not the effing night king and it was like 30 minutes into the panel so it was like everybody's like what is she what are you guys doing up there yeah, it became clear it became yeah. clear we were all like yeah we
1: were we, that was that was a highlight moment for sure yeah that was all Sam <laughs> sam's brainchild that was genius that was a genius call on her behalf i love that so much yes shout yeah. out to sam adolfo <laughs> hell yeah
0: so, we're going to get into some specifics on the books, on your book, where you've got, I've got some quotes even pulled, um, and we've got some ha- selections and highlights to go through. But first, a couple of uh, little things to get through. Uh, I want to give thanks to our patrons. Speaking of making this all possible, Game of Thrones made this possible, and the patrons have also made this possible. So, I want to give thanks to folks like Talenys the Talon, King of Gogasos, Rider of Talerius, the Red Dragon with Scales, Horns, and Talons of Midnight Black. And, of course, Jeff Gnarly, the long Snapper, History of Westeros' First Sword. So, uh, there's a tradition around here where uh, sometimes our listeners, live viewers especially, send in uh, donations to get our guests to say a certain tongue twister. And so the time is nigh. Kim, can you oh my God. say "Irish wristwatch" three times fast? Irish wish <laughs> No. The answer, the answer is no. You start with one time.
1: <laughs> Irish, Irish wristwatch. Why is that so hard? It is really Irish, hard. Irish wristwatch. Irish wristwatch. Irish. Restaurant,
3: yes, frish, as they still lulled you rod. in to thinking it was going to be no big deal, you <laughs> practiced it like 500 times before the
0: that was impressive. Every night before I go to bed, I say, No, <laughs> it's like oh, Arya yeah, with her list. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, quick um, announcement yeah. uh, Valar Reread Us is ongoing, of course. We're rereading all the books with the show information in mind, as well as Fire and Blood and everything else that's come out since uh well since our last reread which we haven't ever done an official reread on the podcast but it's very fun going through all that and attaching all the things we learned from the end of game of thrones to the foreshadowing that we're seeing as we go through we're on episode 10 out of 12 of a clash of kings and thanks to patron voters we're shortening the length of the episodes they've gotten too long we're going to do five chapters a week for storm of swords instead of six as we were doing for clash of kings patrons have spoken uh Uh, I, it says I have spoken on my shirt, but really they have spoken and we will go with that. So Kim, this is your, the first book you've ever written, right? How cool is that? Was that to take us through a little bit of the process of like writing a book. That's like, that's a big deal. Big step in your career, huh?
1: Yeah. Uh, that was the hardest thing I've ever done (laughs) in Mm -hmm. my life. Very nearly uh, broke me. Um, it was, yeah, it was the first time I had ever even thought about writing a book. People keep asking me, like, "Oh, what's the next book?" And I'm, an, I'm like, yeah. 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 I, <laughs> I the like the only I think the only reason why I felt confident in that writing a book about Game of Thrones was something I could do is because like a I already had this back catalog of like hundreds of thousands of words already so I knew that I like had like some material to draw upon. If Um, I write a book,
3: it'll definitely be a self-autobiography. That's (laughs) (laughs) got all that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's the way to go. Um, Yeah, it was, it was really daunting, but I just, I, it was about the time that they, they had finally announced when the final season was coming back. So I knew that we had this like chunk of time and I just kept thinking to myself, like, somebody is going to write a book about this show. Like it is the biggest TV show that has ever existed. Arguably. Um, If they aren't already writing it, they're going to. And I just, at some point decided that I wanted to be that person or at least one of them. Um, So yeah, it was, it was really daunting. It was very stressful. Uh, (laughs) I keep, I keep being told that like nothing about the process of me getting a literary agent, getting a book deal and writing the book was like normal. (laughs) I did all of that in literally a year, like the point from which I like pitched the book, got my book deal and turned in the book. And it came out with like exactly 13 or 14 months or something like that, which is really very fast for the publishing industry. Um, and it was really hard because I was covering the show professionally and having to finish my book at the same time. I had written as much of it as I could without seeing the final six episodes. Um, but yeah, that that month, like April, May, June of this year was like the hardest I've ever worked <laughs> and it was exhausting, but it was, I, you know, I'm very proud of what I accomplished this year and it's it's pretty, pretty rad.
0: 350 plus pages. It is not a short book. I think a lot of people, when they write their first book, probably aim a little lower than that. <laughs> but this is, I mean, you have a lot of research, lots of detailed yeah. research, and you want to get it in there. And yet, like I said, it is a it is a page turner. Uh, I mentioned a lot that we, we pulled some quotes to read, but also you have direct quotes from George R. Martin. And some of those are among the things I said that I'd never heard before. And that's to me, like if you have a quote from an actor, that's really interesting. But a quote from George uh, you know, book fans really want to know what that was. Any kind of quote from George, people are like, yeah, what do he say? What kind of what flavor ice cream does he like? like, you know, like <laughs> pizza <laughs> topping, you know, by the way, have, so, we, yeah. have we held this up? On- no, we should. Let's hold, hold it up. Here we out. go. We have our copy oh. of the Guide to Game of Thrones by Kim Renfro, entertainment uh, a correspondent for Insider says here. And you can see the thickness. Yes. And there's art. Look, you can page through like there's some art in here. I meant to. Uh, I have that on here to ask you later, but let's just go ahead and talk about that now. How how did the artwork yeah. uh, come about for this, and who do we have to thank for this for the artwork in here?
1: Yeah. So the art call oh. by Devin L. Kurtz. Uh, she's an illustrator. I found her through Instagram. Um, actually, nice. when do you guys know Inktober is like a thing that illustrators do? Yeah. Um. So it was October that's i'm like this is bananas yeah that was it. that was a year ago um i was just looking for an illustrator for my book um yeah inktober last year i just was like every day kind of like scrolling through and flagging um artists that i liked and i reached out to a bunch of them to see if they would be open to doing uh custom artwork for the book because it is the unofficial guide to game of thrones <laughs> it is not it was not licensed or sanctioned by HBO in any such way. And that meant that I could not use the likeness of any characters or like Mm. imagery from the show in the book. Um, But my publisher said that like, I should have some sort of artwork in there just to break up the text. And so, yeah, it was kind of a tough brief because I wound up actually choosing Devin not just because I really liked her artwork, but because she had never watched the show before, and so uh. it was actually it made it so that like she couldn't possibly accidentally like draw Kit Harrington as Jon Snow, you know really hard or what.
0: Or not too like you got Kit, Harrington, yeah. You've seen eight seasons worth of Kit Harrington, and you're an artist, a visual person. Right. Like how are you gonna? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so what, what I did was I fed her prompts based on George's descriptions of things in the book. And so I like, I like told her how Ned Stark is described and like what I kind of like wanted for a scene. And then she just like came up with stuff and we kind of like workshopped it from there. So yeah, it was, it was hard to, it was hard to like figure out what artwork would like evoke things and scenes and people that you were familiar with and also not get me sued. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think you
3: talked the, the line well. I I, I I had the thought that the arc work was unique, you know, like it not uh, of a different ilk than yeah. most of the rest I had yeah. Seen. yeah.
1: Yeah. I and appreciate- I mean I would have loved to use like some of the great Game of Thrones fan art out there, but so much of it is just like just like hues too closely mm-hmm. to the stuff that you have either seen in like George R. R. Martin related published copyright stuff or Game of Thrones right so,
0: so and i think yeah. the way i think the way you laid your book out is also kind of a, 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 a timeline wise chronologically very much a, a journey through the process of the show uh, beginning with the origin of the show beginning with the pitch and the casting calls and just the whether it was ever going to be funded in the first place and then yeah. you move on to the actual show and actors' experiences and the viewers' experiences to from the early seasons and then wh- how it grew and then how it changed TV. And then later in the book, we're, we get into things like major plot points and mm-hmm. uh, from multiple angles even, not just how the plot points affected the audience, but again, how that affected the industry and how it affected the actors because Game of Thrones being such an unusual show, you have things that are... Aren't completely new to the industry. Like you have examples like Star Wars, where even uh, a lot of the actors didn't know the Luke Skywalker is Darth Vader's son reveal. Um, but on yeah. Game of Thrones, that sort of thing was taken to another level, where you've got characters who don't know they're going to die, um, and you have books out there in sources like I, she goes through a lot of different characters and how they how they handled it, like oh, yeah. some like Jack Leeson's like. I got a job and I know exactly when I'm going to be fired based on when my character dies. I want to know when that is. But other actors are like, I don't want to know when I die.
3: (laughs) Different actors had different methods. And, you know, another thing is that even if an actor had read all the books and knew everything, books aren't done yet, man. You still don't know how
0: it's going to end as an actor. So that's a good place. good thing I want to ask you about, Kim, like when you were interviewing, you interviewed a variety of different actors uh, and people involved with the show. Was that something that really struck you, the variety of ways that the different actors handled their job? And had you seen anything like that before?
1: I mean, the the interesting thing about me and interviewing folks like for Insider about Game of Thrones and stuff was like, I was brand new to being a reporter <laughs> in addition to like writing professionally. So there was, I definitely experienced like a learning curve when it came to like talking to some of the actors and it, it was always really interesting if I got on the like it was usually always over the phone and like t- like interviewing someone over the phone it's tough and all the actors kind of have their own different like personality types and like or like levels of preparedness if that makes sense like every time I've interviewed Isaac Hempstead right he always has like some sort of analogy or metaphor like ready to go for like explaining <laughs> something about like Brand's powers which was always really cool Um, but yeah, I, the, the thing that was really interesting about the actor's approach to like, do you read the books or do you not? Is that some of them, like you said, were like, why wouldn't I go and get the thousands of pages of extra information and context about my character and their motivations and how they're feeling and their relationships. So like, it's interesting that some people did want to do that. And then others, like I think Lena Headey was one who was like, I never wanted to read the book because I wanted to be able to perform to my best ability of like exactly what Cersei was experiencing in that moment. And a lot of them, and I think this was usually for like the older actors who were more experienced thought like they worried that if they knew what was coming, that that would somehow inform their performance earlier on. And they didn't want to like accidentally be like threading in, you know, plot twists to come or like downfalls or uprises or whatever it was. Um, you hear yeah, that was interesting. kind of like using
0: the emotion that they're feeling and like running with it because it's the proper emotion. Like you could see Cersei or Lena Headey rather being wondering when she's going to be killed off and having maybe a little bit of anxiety or paranoia about it. And just recycling that feeling into her character.
3: <laughs> right. And sometimes actors don't want to. Their take isn't as important as the director's take. Mm. Does that make sense? They don't. Uh, right. they're, they're worried that they are too invested in how this character is supposed to be. They don't want to butt heads with what the director thinks the character supposed to be.
1: Right. Or what's on the page. Like what yeah. what what David and Dan or whoever for that episode had written. Like they don't want to override whatever the directive is in that particular scene. So, yeah. yeah. And of course the
0: adaptation challenges too. Sometimes the way George wrote it is different than they have to do it on screen. So like if you read right. the character and then like that's not actually how it's going to be performed. Yeah. I could see both sides of that I, without even, you know, obviously none of us are actors, but you could kind of see how that would be a challenge and could kind of at least intuitively understand why there's a lot of different ways to approach that. But let's get yeah. into some specifics, some of your uh, specifics of the book. Chapter three is a great place to start. Um, you, It's called The Pitch and the Piece of Shit Pilot. <laughs> I,
3: can I say real quick that uh, talking about the organization of the book, my my original intention, which is kind of like, skim through, read a couple highlight chapters, but I just started reading it from the beginning. I got, like you said, like the way that Kim presents it through the course of the show being set up was sort of a narrative, you know? Yeah. It was like starting to follow. And even though a lot of this stuff I knew, a lot I didn't know, but even a lot I knew, having it consolidated, mm-hmm. all the different random bits of trivia through the years kind of being put together into sort of a story,
0: Anyway, I that's don't wanna, true. Yeah, that's but, a great point. Yeah. Thank you. But, mm-hmm. Well, it's like what you said before. There were a lot. There's a lot of like you said, a lot of people just write put slap Game of Thrones on an article and put it out there for clicks. And there is a lot of that. And so that's part of why these, you know, highlighting the people who did it right is important because you got to cut through all that. And we real recognize real and we know that you're <laughs> a real fan. You're, you're the level of detail. Thank like, you. It's the opposite of what I said happens when I'm reading other articles sometimes or other books and be like, well, they got that wrong. And then a couple days yeah. later, they got that wrong. So then I'm like, well, what else did they get wrong? You know, it's the opposite of what I was yeah. saying with your book. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. I want to keep, the, oh, I didn't know that. Thank you.
1: <laughs> I am I am fully like, oh, I'm sure that there's something. Oh, no, I I know I already got something wrong. I like identified an episode. I like, I said the wrong episode number for like a title. And, and someone very nicely like tweeted, like DM'd me a photo. And they were like, just want you to know that this is the wrong episode title for this number. And I was like. so I just that is all that to say is that I am not perfect I do not claim to know every single thing about this show but I do I did do a lot of research and especially with those earlier seasons because I watched the first four seasons as a fan I wasn't professionally covering the show I wasn't even thinking about like what what a good article would be about this episode. I was just watching it. So for me going back and working on this book with those earlier seasons, that was sometimes the, that was the first time that I had like really read a lot of interviews from like mm. 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012 with like George R. R. Martin and the showrunners. And especially cause back then I feel like they were a lot more open because they didn't know that this was going to be a super popular thing. So it was like, like Tom McCarthy, the director, like, you know, was talking about that original pilot and like this whole interview about a different movie that he was working on. And it's back that in 2011, they were no one was being cagey about like details about the set or like anything like that. Cause the show wasn't this massive phenomenon. And so that was really fun for me. It was going back and kind of reexamining those earlier seasons with the with like the lens that I have now of being like, okay, like what can I pull out of these interviews or what can I, uh, what can, like, what did I not know before? Cause if I didn't know it, then there's a good chance that someone else probably didn't know. you're either. looking back
0: at them and being like sweet summer children, little do they know <laughs> handing out fake scripts, filming fake endings and, and actually using anti-drone technology to stop people from yeah. spying on their sets. I mean, <laughs> damn. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's like yep. a, a, a literal arms race. This stuff, uh, it's unbelievable.
1: Yeah, there's an entire chapter that got cut from the book that I might still try and like publish someday. It's just like a blog post or something that was all about the like spoiler culture oh, that, yeah. that sprang up about like my editor decided that it seemed like my editor was worried that people wouldn't really care about that aspect of it in like five or 10 years. And the idea was hopefully for this uh, book to be something that someone could pick up at any point. But yeah, I wrote like this entire thing about kind of like the way that the like leaks and like all of this, like, like intense, intense, like leak and spoiler culture rose up around the show. But yeah,
0: yeah that's the that, whole maybe other. someone should do a project on that with cross, you know, crossing a few other barriers, like, you know, Star Wars and a few other things that have the yeah. problem. But it's a great, yeah. it's a really fascinating thing because that's a perfect example of something the way industry has changed. That wasn't really an issue other than right. little tiny examples like the Darth Vader one, which wasn't, which there's no drones involved in that. You know, that was just, that's just general information leaking rather than, yeah. <laughs> we're not talking about technology being involved yeah. to, to spy. Things right. like that. So yeah, let's talk about uh, chapter three, the pitch and the piece of shit pilot. This was really fun to read because, like you said, you were a fan season one through four. Um, we had our show, the History of Esther's podcast was going, but we weren't really covering the show to start off with. We were book focused mm-hmm. and we were kind of drawing off the fact that the show was bringing a lot more readers to it. Like, like you know, case in point, a lot of people were watch season one and were like, I don't want to wait till next year. I want to know what happens. <laughs> I want to read the yeah. next book now. Do so I get credit for being patient? Uh, (laughs) You get partial credit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this was really fun. Talk to us a little bit about this process and the pilot and how, how crazy it was to see how little everyone kind of was feeling out this process and how little a lot of people knew what they were doing. Because so much of this was new, like the the style. So much of this is new. The whole, the industry was new. Having epic fantasy on TV was kind of new. How, Dave and Dan were new to making TV. Uh, George wasn't yeah. new to TV, but almost everything was, there was so much broken ground with all this, including the way this broke down. Like the way you describe it in the book, the pilot was a failure and that should have doomed it. but
1: right. Yeah, I think I think my ultimate takeaway from uh reading so much about how this came together and then like putting it all in in context was just like how much dumb luck was involved. <laughs> with, like obviously George, uh, and he's talked about this before him and he has, he has a few different sets of agents is my kind of understanding. And he has this one particular agent who is now like an executive producer and kind of his like co-partner, all this stuff named Vince Girardis, who, um, basically like Vince's sole purpose or goal, especially in the early two thousands was trying to shop around George's writing for adaptation purposes. Like, Mm. He was the person who was kind of helping facilitate those ideas. So he's the one who sent the books to David Benioff. And I think that I, this is something that I couldn't find based on like existing interviews. And I wasn't able to talk to more people about it, but I assume that he may be found Benioff because of his like, you know, script to adaptation experience a little bit like Benioff had done some of some of that before David Benioff reads these books and like sends them to Dan Weiss, who was his really good friend from college at the time and his kind of like writing buddy. Um, So they, on their own, loved these books, were obsessed with them and they decided that it would work best as an HBO show. And George had been kind of like privately thinking like "This this should probably be an HBO show because he had been approached so many times, usually for movies. And every time he was like, no, you can't turn this into a trilogy movie. No, you can't turn this into like you know, a 30 minute on cable TV show, like, no, no, no. So the odd, like when they sat down for that lunch, it was already kind of serendipitous that they were, they had separately been thinking that this would work really well for HBO. And so then they like bonded for lack of a better term over that. Um, it's also very lucky that George, you know, asked them this wonka test question of like, who is Jon Snow's mother? And David and Dan had already been talking about that on their own and they had the right answer ready. And then, yeah, reading. So the, it's called the show Bible is like the term for it. And that's this like massive document that it includes like a pitch letter, sometimes an outline and a lot of TV producers and like showrunners will put together like a show Bible when they're first thinking about making a TV show. So that show Bible is available to read at the, at a local library here in Los Angeles called the writer, the writer's guild foundation. Anyone can go there. You don't have to be a writer's guild member, but you can't take, anything out of the library and you can't, and you can't like document it or any, like you're not supposed to take pictures. You can't, whatever. So for when I was writing this book, I spent a few weeks just like sitting in that library and working on my book with like an iPad basically. And so the show Bible is there and you can read the entire thing. So in that show Bible for Game of Thrones is the pitch letter that they sent to HBO. Mm -hmm. And that was just like, reading that is so fascinating because I'm like, it's a study. It's a study in like, how do you package something like this for an executive producer for the HBO brass who are, you know, potentially spending millions of dollars on this show, which they wound up doing. Um, But it's also like Benioff and Weiss are so brazenly confident in that pitch letter. Like they knew that people would love this story and they, they wrote about it. (laughs) They weren't wrong, but I'm also like, yeah, those guys had never worked in television before. And yet like, and I, I've, I've talked about this with some, some friends before, but like for me pitching my book, part of the way that I had to get a book deal was putting together a book proposal. And there's like a section where you have to kind of like talk about yourself and kind of like, pump yourself up as being like, yeah, I'm like the person who can write a book about Game of Thrones. (laughs) And that was like very hard for like, I had a very hard time, you know, like, Basically bragging about myself on the page or whatever. Benioff and Weiss had absolutely no <laughs> modicum <laughs> of like <laughs> of shame that I could like that I could pick up on. Like they they they're like cursing throughout it, and being like people are going to lose their minds and like, but like in much more graphic language and just like <laughs> again, they weren't wrong. But it's also it's impressive to me that like those two guys were so certain about. The prospects of the show and then they can they you know that pitch letter worked on hbo they got greenlit for a pilot and then the fact that the pilot was so bad <laughs> that like they have called it a piece of shit their friends have referred to it as a piece of shit and i think for th- what's interesting to me about that again is that reading the and you can also read the original pilot script at this same library. So if you're ever in Los Angeles, I suggest going to the Writers Guild Foundation Library. So you can read this show Bible. You can also read the entire original pilot script, which a version of it is online. Also, there's like a PDF floating around online that you can find. But there are two versions in the Writers Guild Library. So I think it's like an an even earlier version. But reading that script, it is like entire paragraphs lifted from George's, book from a game of thrones (laughs) it's like it's just like entire swaps of like description and dialogue and they i think were back then a little more cagey about changing things too much like they really they knew that george's writing was so solid that they i feel like they kind of thought that all they had to do was put that into like a tv script format and they would be good to go and that's just not how television works like you have to kind of spoon feed audiences a little bit more so when you compare the two scripts side by side or even if you're just reading that original script and then like watching the pilot episode which that's what I started doing I would like read a scene and then I had my laptop in the library so I would like watch the actual aired version and like compare the two and like what they had changed and all the stuff that they were changing was just much more spoon feeding of like exposition and like just even like tiny little things like they refer to like a khalasar as just like a tribe of men instead of mm-hmm. a khalasar because mm-hmm. when Viserys just says that and you have no context for what the Dothraki is it's It doesn't actually give you any information as a TV watcher. So like
3: it's more likely when someone's reading a book that they're going to keep reading the book. Right. But just because someone watches the first episode of a TV show, they might not keep watching it. So through the course of the show, eventually they'll understand what the Kalisar is, but if they don't know right up front and if there are too many things, they don't know right up front. They just don't know what's going on. Why am I going to keep watching this? And I've actually happened to have done a little bit of script editing. And I know that is the thing that's easy to do. you like, you have all this information in your brain and when you write it, you assume anyone who reads it will suddenly have all the information in your brain. But that's not true. Right. You have to get to just sometimes it's easy to not give a character a name for like you're like so-and-so and they get dialogue and so-and-so talk back to them. But in that dialogue, they never say each other's names. So the audience right. doesn't know their names. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I appreciated, you kind of talked a little bit in the book about
0: what it was that was wrong with the, the pilot, you know? Yeah, they had a, exactly yeah. this kind of flaw, a very a huge glaring flaw and understanding of some of the characters that was vital, was super yeah. important. And, if you don't like understand
3: that, that, that Jamie and Cersei are brother and sister, that moment at the end right. isn't very shocking, you know? Yeah,
0: they were like, so, why'd they kill right. the kid? Yeah. <laughs> like, what
1: was right. so bad about... And, no, and like, <laughs> yeah, and not only that they're brother and sister, but that Cersei's married to the king, uh, which like now, yeah, like now in, now like the very first conversation that Jamie and Cersei have they specifically call each other brother and sister at least once I think and then Cersei says something about my husband and Jamie's response is like the king would have my head like <laughs> would already have my head on a spike or whatever. it's like these like little back and forths that weren't present in the original version that just like do a little bit more exposition and like relationship establishing same thing with like the title cards of being like Winterfell like mm. that wasn't in the original right pilot like they had to do a little bit more like geography that's something when uh, i try establishment. to establishment
3: when i try to pitch the show to people who haven't seen it before i draw a map i like you yeah. know this is winterfell this yeah. king's landing the lannisters are here and the starks are up there it's, i think it is yeah. for this story specifically important to have this geographical context you know?
0: yeah it really helps
3: yeah it definitely um, yeah
0: uh, one thing i really appreciate too is you you broke down how some of the details of the way the pilot parts of the pilot were saved, which I think a lot of us didn't know. Yeah. Um, uh, for example, that ex- connects a dot that I was always, a lot of us were wondering about. You point out Tyrion's hair, which was very blatantly mm-hmm. blonde in that first scene and then never blonde again. And people are like, what is going on there? It was it's easy to just kind of notice and then forget about because it's, it's just hair color. It's not that big a deal, but it is. Yeah. It stands out. You're like, what, what's going on with that? And yeah. all that explains it. It was a scene from the pilot and yeah that's yeah uh, <laughs> even the
1: little things like there's like one like one little scene of bran climbing like when he's on the roof of winterfell and he's watching the king's party arrive and then he like scrambles down the wall that's from the original pilot and like if you're looking for it you can tell that like isaac Hempstead Wright right is about six or nine months older <laughs> in like, <laughs> the, uh, like just has like a slightly little like babier face and his like wig is like slightly different but like yeah I mean, even like those like Climbing, side side, really yeah. <laughs> Climbing really ages you.
0: Climbing really ages you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, you point out too that w- with Tyrion's hair in mind, that was that's that one's kind of obvious. I mean, you see that, but you pointed out some that are not obvious or are really hard to catch. Like that one's hard to catch. But just the ha- just staying with hair only, there's you know, for example, you point out Sean Bean. There's some difference in his hair that is yeah you're not going to catch that unless you're really eagle-eyed he or looks look for it.
1: so greasy in like a couple it's like the crypt scene and then one of the courtyard scenes and you can tell that they like matted down his hair a little bit more <laughs> in the original <laughs> pilot to like really i guess kind of like place you in this like medieval we're not taking baths a lot <laughs> period of time but <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> So let's take a quick break and we'll come back to talk about chapter six, which is called Literal Songs of Ice and Fire, a chapter very close to my heart. Uh, So for our mid-roll break, let's let people know where they can find the unofficial guide to Game of Thrones. If you can't find it at your local bookseller, we do encourage you to support local bookstores. You can find it uh, on our website. There's a link on historyofwesteros.com to purchase it through Amazon. Also, we would like to thank another batch of patrons who help keep the show running, help keep our lights on, and help us invite cool, fun guests like Kim Renfro on to have awesome chats. Let's say, let's give thanks this time to our Sellsword captains. Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, captain of the Werewood Wanderers, to long lives, quick deaths, cold beer, and warm women. Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, is captain of the Red Tide. Resistance is futile. Kyron Callsbane is captain of the Stone Shields. The Torrent Breaks Upon the Stone. Hema Helminth is captain of the Whispering Children. Dead men tell no secrets. Shepard is the Shepherd of Essos. All men are sheep before the shepherd. Heir to the Whispering Children. Lady Lajara Dajo is the Iron Lily. Master Archer. Castellan of the Summer Island Keep. Arboreal Point. Captain of the all-female Wailing Widows. Motto, women and children first. Cody the Crimson is Bastard of Bracken. Captain of the Red Waste Exiles and Recruiter of the Free Folk. Cameron the Hammer of Hornwood is captain of the English Lions. With the motto, honor is the reward of virtue. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune is captain of the Shadow Wolves. Our steel is cold and our vengeance colder. Black Alex Sand is the Bastard of Spears, leader of the Bermuda Vanguard. And Bittersteel is captain general of the Golden Company. Beneath the gold, the Bittersteel and our ward is as good as gold. Also want to uh, let y'all know. That we have received a donated copy of Fire and Blood from our very own Captain Hey Helminth, a.k.a. Tommy Pappas, who is also a mod of our History of Westeros Facebook group. He went to the uh, an event, a George R. R. Martin event in Chicago where he lives and got a copy of Fire and Blood signed. And he donated to us with the intent of giving it away. So around Christmas time, we'll be doing another live stream where we'll be giving away a signed copy of Fire and Blood. Very cool. All right, so uh, let's get back to it. Chapter six, you have called Literal Songs of Ice and Fire. I really appreciate the specific detail on Raman Jawadi, the person. Uh, You know, you you talk about him and the way he writes his process, how his wife is a big part of it, and just how his brain works, which I thought some of that's particularly interesting. I won't spoil the specifics, but very, very interesting. Uh, Raman is, of course, extremely beloved uh, he is a, a huge part of why Game of Thrones was popular. He's kind of the John Williams to Star Wars, uh, which, you know, John Williams' contribution to Star Wars is one of the biggest contributions, music wise, to a franchise. And this, I feel like, is on that same level. To and,
3: music. Yeah,
0: to music. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to, to, not just to cinematic music, but to just music in general. And yeah. you went into a lot of detail on things that a lot of us know. But don't know well, and but I, by that I mean that the music in a Game of Thrones tells a story uh, because mm-hmm. Ramin writes it that way, and he he's clever mm-hmm. and sneaky and subtle, and it, sometimes it takes extremely well versed. You know, I have a music degree, and I didn't catch like any of these things <laughs> and finding these patterns. Um, and to me, that's just so beautiful because. Already in just the book fandom, one of the things we love about A Song of Ice and Fire is there's so many stories within the story. There's so many stories happening at once. It's not just one story. There's side stories, sub stories, all this, whatever you want to call them. And that is translated on the screen in this unusual way, because obviously music in books is nothing compared to music listened to, whether it's just on headphones or in a, in a movie or what have you. All we get in a book is, you know, he writes out the lyrics sometimes. And uh, when Roy Dotrice puts it to music, he uses, he does things like Frere Jaca and the happy birthday song to set the melody. That's not quite as good as Jawadi. <laughs> <laughs> for and, and so you point out a lot of really interesting details for one that I didn't, maybe I subconsciously knew, but didn't realize was right. you point out that they didn't use any piano until Light of the Seven. And I was like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, you might not consciously
3: think through the course of it, they're not using any piano. And when they do use it, you might not think, hey, they're using piano. But you do recognize there's something different.
0: Yeah, and when you're told, right. you, when you see that reveal, you're like, no wonder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So t- take, yeah. tell us about um, how fun that was to, for you and just anything you want to, any anecdotes you have about the, the music aspects of your research and writing that chapter.
1: I will, I will say Ramin Djawadi is like one of, my favorite people to talk to, um, in terms of like behind the scenes folks that I've been able to interview over the years. Um, I, when I first started writing for insider, like, you know, we weren't a very well-known website and you can argue that we're still not, I feel like half the time I tell someone I write for insider, it's like a crapshoot of whether or not they know what that means. Um, but so my, my like angle to try and get interviews, for the website was to like ask for like the people that weren't, you know, like I wasn't gonna get Amelia Clark on the phone, but I was kind of like, maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe I can talk to Ramin Jawadi. Like, I love the music on the show. And so I've interviewed him three times now for Insider. And so that's what's in the book is like all of my old interview quotes from him that have appeared <laughs> online already, but just kind of like put together in a more cohesive uh, chapter. And yeah, I like, I, I'm, I'm one of those people who really believe that the score on a movie or a TV show is like what tips the scale for me, like loving it versus just enjoying it. I Great. think that it makes a world. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it makes a world of difference. And like you said, it, it has this its own narrative to it. And that idea of like building a melody from an earlier season that like has an actual impact later on in the show is just really cool. And so Yeah, I loved that he was able to like, like he told me little things like um, that Littlefinger music. I don't think that I would have ever noticed that uh, on my own, but he was the one who told me that he had written a melody specifically for Littlefinger that you don't really hear in full until like season three, practically. It like really kicks in in that chaos of the ladder scene. But if you're rewatching the pilot, a little hint of that same melody plays when the Raven arrives at Winterfell. Um, because Littlefinger is the one who uh. was behind like he was like behind all the machinations of of Liza Aaron sending that letter. And you're not gonna find that out for seasons and seasons and seasons. But Ramin Jawadi put a little musical cue in there that like if you're rewatching it, you can hear this like foretelling that Littlefinger is somehow involved in what's happening here. Um,
0: I love that so much. Yeah. Just stuff
1: like that.
0: Yeah. Because this is something we just harp on to our listeners. Like George R. R. Martin has been very clear that he wrote a song of ice and fire to be reread. He puts stuff, he he gives you Mm -hmm. the answers to to riddles before he even tells you what the riddle is. So Mm -hmm. um, this, and this is exactly the same thing. Rami and Jawadi are okay. First of all, People in the chat have been telling me I'm saying it wrong. It's Ramin, not ramen. He's not noodle. He's not noodle soup. My bad. I apologize. Ramin Jawadi. Uh, so he's basically that's he's captured George's technique. And uh, not that he George invented this technique, but he's fit in with what's there so well. And we just love that. I appreciate that so much.
1: Yeah. And he's just he's he's a very cool Guy also on his own, like he's so humble. He's like he's very like kind of like soft spoken, just like chill. Is like obviously a master of his craft for being so young too. I don't know exactly how old he is, but I think he's in his like mid to late thirties. He'd never be um, able to
3: write a pitch, pumping himself up to HBO. Like <laughs> no. <D&T>, right?
1: <laughs> no, I don't think he would. He'd have to uh, send us all yeah. of his
0: music. That would that would tell the story. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm really I'm. I'm so thrilled that like people have really connected with him in particular and that they like celebrate what he contributed to the show because it's just like, it's immeasurable how, how much better, I think the music made certain scenes and episodes over the years. And again, like you said, it adds to that rewatchability of it.
0: And this is, this is something that is really big. I think that you you as a, someone who's uh, A real fan i keep using that phrase i don't think that's a good phrase to use but people know what i mean because <laughs> i don't think we should be judging people on their fan yeah we're not fan. but you know what i mean we're not gatekeeping
1: here yeah
0: but there's, that's not what i there's a, a level,
1: level yeah i think for me i think what you mean is that like i i like i've like been part well, at least observing fan communities i was not very active on reddit or anything like that but like there's a difference when you're when you're writing about something or interviewing somebody and if you have like been embedded in that fandom community and been observing conversations that people have and rewatching stuff for years versus someone who just like gets an assignment to go interview somebody and you don't really know very much about, Exactly what's going on. Like, there's a different, there's like surface level questions that you ask in an interview versus, like, tell me about the musical cue of Light of the Seven because like, <laughs> I
0: don't know. Yeah, because you're but, a fan and a journalist. So you have the same questions that a lot of us have because you want to know, you have fan centered questions, but you have the skill to ask them properly <laughs> as a journalist, you know, to know how to like phrase the question and to get the information you need. Um, a lot yeah. of us would just be like, Thank you. Oh, tell me the blah, blah. You know, we would just, just... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so we're yeah, lucky they're... that you're, you're not just someone doing a job, That uh, yeah, that really shows. Thank you. Um, so uh, in addition to Ramin, we're all, Sean and I and Ashea as well were curious to some of the other, um, actors and actresses that you interviewed or showrunners that were particularly interesting or any, any particular anecdotes you want to share. Some of them are in the book, of course, but, uh, if you have ones you want to highlight or maybe even some that weren't in the book, um, whatever you think is good, go for it.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the trickiest thing about writing this book was that I wasn't able to do any new interviews for it Uh. specifically because HBO was not sanctioning it. So like mm-hmm. I I there are so many more people that I would have loved to talk to for the book that I didn't. Um so in that way I think I like I had to get a little more creative with what I was doing in terms of like using interviews that I had already conducted for Insider in years past. Um versus like like my costume, I have a whole section on the costumes and like I would have loved to interview Michelle Clapton but as you guys might know like they have this the, that like big hardcover costume book that just mm-hmm. came out this yeah. month um so like of course I wasn't like they were doing their own basically like mega volume of like costuming whatever so for my chapter I had to just kind of like do all of my own personal analysis which was a little daunting um, but I think in the end it made it so that my book is a little bit more uh, it's a little more personal than it would have been otherwise if I was just doing like a bunch of you know, canned Q and A, like spouting off. Um, but yeah, like I've I've I have not ever interviewed David Benioff and DB Weiss, and okay. I would love to. But I would also I I feel like I would be so. I don't know. Like, I I feel like maybe that's just not <laughs> not in the card, not in the cards for me because it's just what such a contentious.
3: Gives you the right. How
1: dare you! First of all, how dare you? First, first of all, how dare you. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's probably not going to happen. Um, but no, I mean, for me, over the years, like it's definitely been yeah, highlights of my life have been the times that I have been able to, like, go to the premieres and, like, talk with people and, like, like, when I saw, and I, not to be honest, like, I'm, I don't want to be braggy. This is when I'm, like, I don't know how to talk about this. No, brag, things. do it. But, this like, is your moment. <laughs> it's, like, like, when I went, I went to the Emmys this year for the first time. Uh, I was, like, doing, like, red carpet reporting. Um, And I saw, I interviewed Liam Cunningham and Isaac Hempstead Wright. And Liam Cunningham, like, recognized me a little bit like because he the very first time i interviewed him they said like oh this is like kim renfro's on the phone and he was like renfro like in his like scottish irish accent whatever it is but he was like he he was like asking me where my name was from because he kind of like recognized that it was like some english irish whatever and i was like i don't actually know where i'm from (laughs) but so he like he like kind of knew my name and i was like that is so crazy <laughs> like I'm standing here like on the Emmys red carpet and like Liam Cunningham is like oh yeah Kim Hintra, I know you <laughs> and I was like okay um so yeah it's it's very cool and i like yeah also at that I went to the HBO after party for the Emmys and like I saw Ramin Jawadi, and he recognized me also because I've interviewed him three times now and I like I almost it almost seemed like he wanted to like chat but I was so like hello, good job, like, and I just kind of, like, (laughs) kept moving, because I didn't want to, like, be a weird person who was, like, imposing on their celebrations, but yeah, it's been, I feel very, very lucky that I get to do what I do, and it's really fun.
0: I really loved y'all, anyone who picks up the book, or maybe already has, you're gonna really love the section on, uh, what she has to say about Conleth Hill, and, um, yeah. And that's stuff that I think that people have heard before like blurbs like like little little hints here and there have emerged over the years that Con Hill is a great dude. And yeah,
1: uh, he's, he's excellent. Confirm that. <laughs> he's great.
0: So the next chapter I want to talk about a little bit here is uh, chapter seven happens to be the next one words or wind greatest moments in series history and uh I, I really enjoyed this section but i also want y'all who are watching live or listening live to chime in with some of your favorite moments in the series now kim you picked a, a wide variety of quotes and i appreciate this may be in, a, in a vacuum to, to li- our listeners this may sound funny for me uh, a little odd for me to say it this way you noticed a, uh, you picked a lot of Quotes, some of which were also book quotes, but a lot of them were show only quotes. And I think that's good because while you obviously have read the books and know them really well and weave that into this book, it's about, it's more about the show than the book. So it's appropriate to kind of highlight the things the show owners did on their own.
3: It is um, the unofficial guide to Game of Thrones. Yeah. Not the unofficial guide to yeah. Ice and Fire.
0: Right. So a good example yeah. I picked out. So yeah, folks lo- weigh in with your favorite moments, but also, um, An example that I pulled that you gave is, which also touches on the difference between book and show, is uh, the challenge of adaptation and presenting the information. Like Sean said, you know, you have to, what we know isn't what the audience knows. You have to present it in a certain way that works for TV and with Ned's execution, which is also, which is a perfect example because it's also a a redefining TV moment. Uh, So a lot of things happening in this moment all at once. And the way you put it is that in the book Arya, it's from Arya's point of view. So you're not in right. Ned's head. You don't see Ned's. Eye, you don't have close up of his eyes. It's Arya is too far away for that. But what you do have is uh, the way they changed it. You describe it very well. How they used like Ned's Sean Bean's eyes, and he was like gesturing to Yoren, and they were able to show that. Mm-hmm. To and that's really good. And you actually pointed, and this is another yet another example of something I didn't know, was you pointed out that George had a comment on that change. And I won't say exactly what it was. This is one of those, I'm going to be a little bit of a jerk and not say, if leave that as a tease. But it, well, he did say something positive about that. And that's really cool. Because it's probably extremely validating for them to when George says that's a good change. Cause (laughs) everyone's nervous about changes, you know, some of us hate the changes, but uh, certain changes more than others, of course, but um, it's a a very nerve wracking thing. So what what, let's, if you could speak um, to that process of adaptation for a minute, that would be really cool.
1: Yeah. I think that there are, I think that Ned's execution is a good example of times in which it, completely benefited them to have the ability to like show like alternative points of view. And so for Ned's execution in particular, I think that the, the buildup of tension in that scene is so well done. And yeah, like you mentioned the, the addition of having Ned like clock the fact that Arya is, is there in the crowd and like basically make it so that his last act like the last thing that he can do and not like have any sort of impact on is protecting his daughter um was really powerful and I think for the better. And yeah, that's just something where because that chapter is told from Ari's point of view, we have no way of knowing what's going on in Ned's head and uh, the fact that the last, the last time that we are in his head is in that dungeon scene, which is another like, God, what a just, it's just a beautiful episode of television, mm-hmm. but like that scene with the way that they pulled off that scene between him and Varys and like Conleth Hill and Sean Bean in that like quiet just like the two of them lit by torchlight scene is so good and it says so much um and the way that they I like that they open the episode with that conversation and so then as you're watching the rest of the episode you're wondering what Ned is going to do because Varys like leaves him with this choice of like Basically, like your daughters or your head, um, and then the way that they structured the episodes—that you're you're checking in with Robin Catelyn, you're checking in with Aria a little bit, and you're kind of like the entire time. If you were a show-only person, you might be wondering what is Ned going to do and how. Like, what is what is his, what are his family's motivations versus like what is his motivation, and then the entire story as a whole. And I just think it's very very well structured um, in a way that is unique to a TV show presentation versus what George did in the books.
0: And boy, did it affect people. I mean, you know, I had read the books already, so I knew it was coming. And I was kind of like in that gleeful, like (laughs) a lot of people were with the Red Wedding, like, how are people going to react to this? (laughs) And there were like friends of mine on Facebook the next day like, maybe he's not really dead. And I'm like, "Mm, sorry, y'all. Yeah, (laughs) I know. But mm. so that's a great segue to the first actual quote I've pulled from your your book, which is both talking about how Game of Thrones affected TV, something we've touched on briefly throughout the episode, but haven't gotten into with gr- level of detail. So let's do that now. And we'll start off with this quote. Sean's going to go ahead and read it. Something we might take for granted now
3: is the way Game of Thrones reworked audiences' expectations about the pacing of a TV season. Ned Stark's death, the Battle of Blackwater, the Red Wedding, the Battle of Castle Black, Hard Home, the Battle of the Bastards. All of these were major events that any other series might have saved for its season finale. But the Game of Thrones took a literal page from Martin's books and sprinkled in huge upending plot points earlier in the seasons.
0: Yeah, that's super concise. I thought that was a perfect way to, to kind of explain all this and and, and narrow it down. And uh, I didn't really think about it that way, too. I mean, I knew, like, when you say Game of Thrones changed television, that statement is a lot, something that a lot of people can identify with. But when you get into the details of exactly how, that's not something that most people can speak to with expertise. Like, well, just because it was so popular because of the, the people dying, you know, like there's, there's, there's a lot more nuance to it than just that. So that's something I really appreciated. You got into a lot of detail with that. So if you could speak to some of that while also would love to hear about the industry side of this. I mean, a lot of us, we saw these things as fans, you know, but in terms of Mm -hmm. how it reshaped the industry, we're, we're not as, we're not as uh, we don't know about that as well. That's, that's a little outside of our sphere. So I think a lot of people, a lot of listeners would, would love to hear um, something about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, as I said in that quote it's very funny to like see my own write, my writing in like quote form. I'm like, oh yeah, I, I did I did say that. I'm, I'm, I'm,
0: I'm, you sure did.
1: Words. Um not bad, Kim. Um, uh, I by the way, will like never read this book again if I can help it in my entire life. So nice. Um, so yeah, this, the idea that the penultimate episode of TV is actually the most important, like show stopping one is something that I think some other shows were maybe doing, but now I think game of Thrones made it a lot more common for you, for you to not put all your eggs in the basket of the finale, but instead like do something very like dramatic and yeah, like game changing a little bit earlier in the season and then it adds like an element i think for tv audiences that's a lot more exciting to feel like you don't precisely know what the pacing of a season is going to be based on the the episode number i think with game of thrones it maybe became a little bit predictable for them that you would have something crazy in the penultimate episode which is why um i mean and then like it's also really cool to me that Benioff and Weiss then use that to their advantage because that's why Hardhome was a big surprise that to people because we were ex- we were we were expecting it to ha- we were expecting something crazy to happen in episode nine, not episode eight. And so, like the fact that episode eight was actually their big kind of like blockbuster moment of that season is really cool. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of how it's affected the industry overall is like now it's now we're getting. We're getting seasons of television that cost a hundred million dollars like it's nothing. Yeah. And like that is that's like like I I mean, we have Mandalorian right now, I think was about that expensive. Um, Witcher coming up was also another one that Netflix, I think, poured a lot of money into. Uh so this idea that you can take a blockbuster movie's budget and put it into television is something that Game of Thrones absolutely changed and made a lot more common
0: um especially given which type of the witcher is you know and then we have lord of the rings show and uh time show and brandon sanderson stuff has been options you can really see where uh, a lot of that uh a lot of that money is going with genre wise yeah
1: yeah i also think that game of thrones um made it a lot more common for you to have like a true ensemble cast of core characters mm. instead of just one singular star. And again, like Benny often wise to use that to their advantage when they cast Sean Bean and he was by far the most famous person in this new show. So everyone assumed that he was, that's the main protagonist. He's clearly the star of the show. Sean Bean's the most recognizable face here. We're going to follow him for however many seasons. Um, they use that to their advantage to make Ned's death even more shocking for people who were only watching the show. But then once he was gone, it really like, when you look at award nominations and stuff, it's like, how are you going to pick a lead actor out of this set of characters when really they're all being doled out about an equal amount of significant character time and like great monologues and like, whatever, this idea that you can have eight, stars of your show and like lead characters versus just following one or two. I think is also a lot more common now. That
2: was the
3: crux of my note taking, by the way, was trying to determine who the main character was. That was my format was I would write the characters out on a, on a page and like draw lines whenever they interacted and try to see who had the most lines coming from them. And I still couldn't figure out who the <laughs> like, like I guess yeah. one character has seventeen lines and one has sixteen and one has fourteen. So I <laughs> I don't know if that really makes one of them the main character or not, especially because it would flip flop each episode. Yeah.
0: So. Like Ned, you right. could argue Ned was the protagonist of Game of Thrones. But once you get past book one, Yeah, it's maybe Tyrion is the protagonist of Clash of Kings. Maybe he has the most screen time. But but, so this is a good point, because we're talking about breaking the awards format. It's yet another thing that Game of Thrones kind of threw a monkey wrench into made. They forced the industry to change by by being good in new ways. I want to come back just briefly to what you just said about the uh, other shows and how much they're spending, too. Because, or not, not how much they're spending, but about the uh, the use of Sean Bean and how that was a big surprise. That trick doesn't work anymore. Everyone knows yeah. the famous actor that <laughs> lasts one season trick. Now it's been done a <laughs> yeah. lot, and but b- before it was a new thing. So that's yet another thing that Game of Thrones is going to go down as unique because that's a trick that this isn't going to work again. <laughs> yeah. Now that they did the totally. opposite. Make it look like they're going to kill the guy off, especially if you hire Sean Bean, who everybody expects to die, and then <laughs> oh, he just. Keeps and he keep putting him in situations where like oh he's gonna die and then someone saves him. It's like whoa, Sean Bean was saved at the last minute. That <laughs> yeah, happens.
1: That's the, the plot twist is that he's alive.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's even in that. That joke is so out there that even Sean Bean knows that he's like yeah I'm always <laughs> yeah. killed. I need to not know. get killed so much. Speaking of getting killed, the Battle of Blackwater was the first on screen battle, like big battle they were able to do. Uh, season one didn't have you know any large scale engagements like that. And so talk can you talk to us briefly about how that pushed through as in we're talking about the the industry adjusting to all this and was there i know this was kind of in the past for you at the time because like you said you were a fan for the first four seasons but when you were researching blackwater how was there any was there a lot of difficulty for them to you know justifying spending so much money on a single tv episode and and uh things like that
1: Yeah that was the first time that they had to kind of go to HBO With like empty hands and be like, please, sir, can we have some
0: more? Um, Stick a few million in our cup, please. Fifteen to be. It was
1: literally, I think, I think for uh, Blackwater in particular, they had to ask for an additional. It was either one point five or two million dollars. I can, uh, Google it to, to verify, but it was, um, they did have to specifically ask for a little bit extra. And I, there was a lot of pressure on them to deliver something that made that money worth it. Um, because as you guys obviously know, having read the books, there was supposed to be the, the battle of Red Fork. That's what it's called at the Trident, whatever the the one that Tyrion was supposed to be in. in yeah, the one where he just gets the knocked first out. Season. Uh, Green Fork. Yeah. yeah. Green Fork. Green Fork. Yeah. Sorry. Green Fork. Yeah, so they, they, did not, they were not given extra money that season. So they just had to kind of like hit Tyrion upside the head and skip the <laughs> entire battle because HBO <laughs> wasn't giving them extra money to pull that off. And so, yeah, Battle of Blackwater was a big testing ground for them. Um, and they brought in Neil Marshall, the director, kind of at the last minute. So again, it's like the amount of just like dumb luck, but also combined with clear talent involved in some of these like earlier seasons, like Neil Marshall did not have very much time to prep for that battle. Um, and the fact that he pulled off what he pulled off with those action sequences is pretty incredible. Um, and then a big part of the budget obviously went into all of the CGI with the, with the wildfire, which still looks great. Like that holds up. So yeah, I think that they probably breathed a very big sigh of relief when people responded to that episode the way that we did because it was a fantastic episode of television um
0: yeah yeah. i think it's gone down as a lot of people still cite it as their favorite battle of of the whole run of the show even though it maybe has the least money spent not that it doesn't have a ton of money spent on it um it may be the least visually spectacular which is again not to say it isn't visually spectacular because they just kept upping the budget and the show got more popular but yeah a lot of people still think it's the best because of the the conflict um the character moments uh the music and uh well, a, lot, a variety of reasons. I, are, am I mistaken? Are you you're, are you one of the people that thinks it's the best or it's close? I think hard home is the best. Okay. But
3: one thing about yeah, Blackwater. From hard
2: home. Yeah,
3: <laughs> One thing about Blackwater was that it that it wasn't pure battle. Uh, yeah, I don't know exactly. how to say that, mm-hmm. but uh, a lot of what I think makes it good <laughs> is that they were limited in a budget, so they couldn't just have 20 continuous minutes of fighting in CGI. We get this interaction between Braun and the Hound, and we get this. Sansa you know, Cersei was really good. Yeah, Tyrion speech and stuff like that. It, you know, obviously action is a big part of this, mm-hmm. and it's popular, and these battle scenes are exciting, and a lot of effort and talent goes into them. But I care way more about two characters talking to each other yeah. than I do about two people yeah. slinging swords at each other. So, um, but when they get two people slinging swords at each other, well that's some that's like the highlight moments you know so. yeah
0: like it's that's that really stands out you're, you're right if, they, and if they, when they do both really well then you're like yeah I'll watch that over and over <laughs>
1: so yeah which i think blackwater achieves because they're balancing especially with yeah. like the women in the castle like the juxtaposition between those like little two-hander two characters talking scenes with the action happening outside the castle is very, very well done. That's
0: extremely good. Yeah. And I think, I believe there was a, a viral post going around Twitter and Facebook where there was some person that watched Blackwater like 2,000 times in a year. <laughs> oh, my God. So HBO Go published some data. And I don't know. I, don't know, I never, I didn't like, they, look,
1: oh, yeah. Shared their HBO account.
0: Right. Account. It's a share. Yeah. Points out <laughs> it's got to be a shared account. But still, a shared account that watched 2, 000 Blackwater 2,000 times is still really spectacular. <laughs> spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> uh so i pulled another quote from your book this was this was a sh- this is a shorter one i think it's uh really perfect in terms of how much it captures um in terms of foreshadowing and just storytelling sansa's reaction in this moment will be a through line
3: to the final seasons and her ennobled fight for the north while cersei's flight to the cold iron throne foreshadows her journey cersei sits upon that steely seat of power not by not hers by right with tommen in her lap
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, this is a moment from season two that really well, you really explain really well their arcs from from an early point and where they're going. And that's really accurate. Yeah, Cersei going to the throne, hiding on the throne that doesn't love her, dying on, wanting to, intending to die on the throne. Of course, she's interrupted by her father marching and saying, We won. But uh, that's a great quote. And this is something that I wanted to highlight for people listening because uh, I think that's, um, something that people will really appreciate and maybe encourage them to check the book out. Thank you. You're welcome. So uh, the Red Wedding, though, that's another uh, talk about a huge moment of TV. Ned's death was almost like a setup for an even bigger game changing moment, because as you put in the book, surely this time (laughs) we wouldn't. So (laughs) so. It was a big moment on TV obviously. It was one of the moments that rippled through the industry. It was people you got people on Conan O'Brien, you got people f- filming their friends like we did. We have a reaction of Sean cuz he hadn't read the books. He rippled through culture. Yeah, he he was one of the people with his hands over his mouth like, "Oh my god, I can't believe it." But you knew, you read the books by then. So just for fun, what was it like for you seeing it on TV versus like, you know, managing your friend's reactions and, and kind of were you chuckling or were you like with them crying or somewhere in between?
1: I actually don't. I think I watched it with at the time, my boyfriend, he's now my husband, uh, but we had both read the books at that point. So I, I kind of missed the like in person, uh-huh. <laughs> like cherishing that with other people. So I was one of the people that really loved watching all of those YouTube videos like in the in the following days because that was where I got like my satisfaction of watching people in real time realize that this was happening. But I it's funny cuz with the red wedding episode, I didn't really love it the first time I saw it. <laughs> it
0: was so brutal. Um, I didn't either. I, I didn't was, either.
1: I was yeah, I was <laughs> I was I was really harsh on it in terms of like it bothered me that I felt like we didn't actually see any of the, like the Stark men or like anyone in that room really put up a fight. Like that was to me, reading the reading that chapter was so heartbreaking because not only like, was it a shock when the fighting starts, but like there are a couple moments where you think like they might still be okay. Like, (laughs) like there are four people protecting rob and like there are tables turned over turned into shields and like there there's a little bit more of an actual struggle and it kind of when i was like watching the episode unfold it it bothered me at first that it was like literally just bloodshed and like nobody like nobody was getting getting a a knife in or a you know a stray stabbing to a a fray man or a someone so that kind of bothered me and the the like the silent at like Catelyn's scream and then like the silence also like didn't sit well with me at first because again, like in my head, I had like that Catelyn's, uh, Catelyn's entire internal monologue and that like not my hair, like Ned loves my hair. Like I was missing feeling that from her when I first watched it. And in the years since, and when I have done like my rewatches, it's definitely grown on me. And I now, I think, appreciate the choices that they made there. But it's interesting because at first I really. I was kind of bummed out that they hadn't. It didn't quite match what I thought in my head it would look like. And now I've kind of come to just like understand them for their own separate adaptations. But yeah.
0: Do you have a violent reaction anytime, or or some sort of some sort of reaction anytime you see like that fray hat on someone?
1: (laughs) 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 It's brutal. But yeah, you like that. The the cultural impact of it was something that I've. I saw happen right away. Like people talking about it and it really broke through, I think. Um, and I don't think that the show would have been as popular if they hadn't made it to that moment. And that's the big thing that Benioff and Weiss have said is that when they first started, like even like in their, in their pitch and stuff, they knew that if they could at least get through three seasons, like if they could convince HBO to continue bankrolling the show for three seasons, that if they hit the red wedding, that was when they would capture, like even more millions of people. And they did.
0: They're right. They were sure, certainly right about that. Yeah. So a little bit more about that. How did it impact the industry? Like Ned Stark's death was, you know, a pretty big moment in the industry. But what about uh, what about the Red Wedding? How did that uh, we talked about, you know, people like from Conan to all these other TV shows were just all of a sudden talking about Game of Thrones. And did you see that impact on on your side of things? Or, or was that just maybe a little before you were doing this professionally or, or what? Happened?
1: Yeah, it was. It Did was definitely before I was't <laughs> like, I <can't, laughs> like can't
0: leave. we need
3: to keep her writing about this show <laughs> no i wasn't
1: I wasn't writing about it yet. I didn't start writing about it until oh. season five mm-hmm. um so from and again, like in terms of like writing this book, it was kind of fun for me to like go back and actually get to write about this episode because I had never really been able to do any sort of like analysis or in depth writing about the red wedding in particular um. So yeah, I think it, I think it changed the industry, especially like when we talk now about, when we talk about like spoiler culture and not like leaks and like pre-episode stuff, but it's like, what is the window in time after an episode airs that it is like, okay to discuss what happened in that episode openly. And so the red Mm -hmm. wedding was really interesting because that was an example of like book readers could have very easily Ruined it or spoiled it ahead of time because we all knew what was coming, but they didn't. And like the fact that there was this very careful, like internet lingo, like they wouldn't, they would have just refer to it as RW yes, on like forums and RW, stuff. If you like go back, they wouldn't even say wedding. And then after the episode aired, I still feel like it was this like unique thing in that People still like they would they would say red wedding, but people would try and avoid saying like exactly what happened at the red wedding, so that even like a year or two later, if people were finally then deciding to catch up with Game of Thrones, it would still be a little bit of surprise. Be
0: like, oh, I don't that's think that's what you guys Holy
1: crap! Yeah, <laughs> this is what's happening. Right. Whereas I don't really think that I don't think that we would uh, be able to pull that off in 2019. I think, I think
3: that e- even if you yeah. told someone. Who hadn't read the book or seen the show? If they if they got spoiled, someone told them like everyone's going to get killed at <laughs> Rob's wedding at the without, something along that line. I I still don't think that the average viewer would think that like all the random soldiers in a background are going to get killed, <laughs> not that Caitlin and Rob and like the you know the all the think main it's an characters. exaggeration. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it, you still right. I think would be a little surprised, a little surprised if you knew what was going to coming. You know. Another Yeah. Another, and I mean oh, it's a
1: testament to the it's a testament to the writing that even knowing what's hap like knowing what's coming, it still doesn't lessen the impact. Yeah, like yeah. you're saying. It's mm-hmm. actually seeing it versus just hearing casually like, Oh, Rob dies. Yeah, like, you wanna you wanna
0: see like exactly like I was riveted, I knew exactly what was gonna happen, but I'm still like, How are they gonna do this? And the same I'm I'm gonna have that same feeling when House of the Dragon drops. I mean Most watchers of History of Westeros podcast know a lot or everything about the Dance of the Dragons, but we knew all of book one back and forth and we were still excited to see Game of Thrones hit the screen. So that's it's definitely the journey. It's not just the destination, um, especially with a show like this. And of course, the fandom, the community, that's a big part of it, too. We're all going to be energized when... uh, Past the Dragon drops and be getting excited when the trailers start coming. We'll talk about that a little more in a little bit. We've got a few more uh, things to get through on, on your book before we move on to the future of Game of Thrones. So one other quote I pulled from your book, I really appreciate this one. You wove in a line from the show to describe what happens, and you can see how I'm moving my hands to... That's, no, how how done, that's how you weave yeah. that's how you weave right there the, the quote is and it's referring to the Red Wedding you wrote Rob fought he lost now he rests which of course is uh, Alistair Thorn line when he's being uh, hanged not hung you know he's not a carpet right not a tapestry not a tapestry <laughs> so I thought that was really cool weaving and book and show stuff together we uh, we try to do that a lot here so that was a that's really good but we have a lot of answers from people from the question of their favorite moments so let's Let's go through some of these audience answers here and, uh, and respond to uh, what they've picked out here. This will be a fun little jump. Am I memory. part of the audience? Can I give one? You, you absolutely can, but you got to get in line. Okay. <laughs> First off, we have D-Cell saying, G.R. Mormont doing the Ranging North speech to John. And Danny's marching north with all the Unsullied it was epic as well. Yeah, the Ranging North speech like, do you really think it matters? sits the Iron Throne. Yeah, that's mm. a ooh, good one. Good one, D-Cell. Steven Stark says that shot with John facing a cavalry charge might be my favorite visual. That one was heavily memed. That's a good one. You know, like it's people so beautiful. It, it came up a lot yesterday, being Black Friday. It's like Black <laughs> Friday shopping. <it's> like, <laughs> yeah. Retail <laughs> employees are John Snow, like, oh God, here they
1: it's go. also I love that shot because I mean John is one of my favorite characters, and I really love hit and like all the hard work he put into being John over the years. But like that shot, the fact that like you don't have John's face, but like his, like his body language in that moment is doing so much to show what he's feeling. And then the fact that those were actual horses that they had on, like that could have, they could have easily CGI would that. But the fact that that was like a real shot of like him being charged that by like 20 horses, it's beautiful. <laughs> 20 so, yeah, 20 horses. I second that. <laughs> I second that, that nomination.
3: The Tower of Joy scene, where it eventually shows baby John, then switches to current, soon to be K-I-T-N John, King in the North. King in the North John. <laughs> the monologue cat tells Talisa about the baby who got the pox. Mm. The scene where Arya tells Genry, Gendry, I can be your family. It's,
2: no. no.
0: <laughs> Favorite battle? Battle at Castle Black, and that's from Meyer twenty seven. Thank you, Meyer. That's a, that's a, b- a bunch of good choices. Yeah, the Tower of John, Tower of John. <laughs> well, that's, well, that kind of works. Tower <laughs> of Joy <laughs> scene where where they where they merge from baby John to, to adult John. That was really good with the music. From now too. on, Tower of John, Tower of John, John. That is yeah. what it should be called. <laughs> I, I've never heard that pun before. That's surprising. <laughs> Uh, Uriah's talk says, I'll do a tough one. Best part of season eight brand telling Theon he's a good man. And then Arya and Tywin conversation. Oh, yeah. Arya and Tywin conversation. Kim, you particularly so like that one, huh?
1: In yeah, that was one of my, right? I don't know. You tell me. Yeah, I haven't read this. Anyway,
0: <laughs> you're right about that. And you were right about that. That's a good, that's it's, it's definitely a sighted a moment. Arya and just some guy. Whether it's Tywin or the Hound or mm-hmm. so, you know, it's like that's just a great combo. Yeah. Uh Bio Gal 90 says, maybe not greatest, but I like how they got the emotion for the red wedding. Still cry when I hear Rains of cast Yeah, yeah. I also think Pod singing Jenny's song was totally awesome. Yeah. Definitely hard. Ugh. Hard agree with Tears. all of that. Yeah. Sean hates every time. John says,
3: Brianne's Nighting is my season eight highlight. Most of Danny's non English speeches. Ooh. Cersei and Tommen on the Iron Throne during Blackwater also gets me every time. The unfurling of the Stark Banner on the Wall of Winterfell Ooh. following Battle of the Bastards.
0: Oh, yeah. That's a good one. When they get their home back, that <clears throat> is really powerful. Yeah. Good. Great imagery. Yeah. Like lots of those. That, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> khaleesi clues which is a great screen name says good afternoon john beating the tar out of ramsey bolton Arya killing walder frey two of my favorite scenes <laughs> that right on someone likes revenge <laughs> can't deny that those were pretty satisfying though like I, I, as, as far as someone who deserves a beating or a killing those two are good examples <laughs> Uh, John Webster says adore Cersei and Tommen on the Iron Throne in Blackwater, which is written by David and Dan, despite most of the episode being, being written by George. Yeah, so that's just a, a few people citing that one. Very good. Danny McKay. First time seeing The Wall in Castle Black. Oh, yeah. Just like right off the prologue scene. Yeah, I mean, I definitely got a little teary when I saw the first episode <laughs> because... I was waiting, you know, since 2006, when started announcing it, I, I followed that whole process along and was just, so a lot of us were kind of anxious to be, you know, is this going to be good? I hope it's good. <laughs> so, and when it was, it was very, uh, it was a bit of a relief when I saw the wall and the music I was like, oh yeah, it's good.
1: Whew. Yeah, they're doing it. It's yeah. happening. Yeah. It's happening. That, that it's happening.gif.
0: Like. <laughs> <laughs> so now we have uh, Kate Bertinsky says, I loved when Sansa and Jon reunite. That first Stark reunion packed a punch. Ooh, I think one of my all-time favorites is when Edmure is struggling to light Hostratulli's funeral boat and the Blackfish steps in and is a total BAMF. And Kate also says, that cat is fluff and majestic. I believe she's talking about your cat. Ours are mine, on, but they're not on camera. Yeah. No. She was walking around Zel- earlier. She got out of her bed oh. and got back in. So
1: I missed that. Zelda, Zelda loved the tension. So mm-hmm. she's now she's at least in the background. But Zelda,
0: if you, if she only knew that she was on camera right now, she would,
3: <laughs> no. she'd be, she would be awake. <laughs> Reading through that chapter of like highlight moments and highlight episodes from each season that you did, Kim, it got me thinking about mine. Of course, I've thought about it before, and I can't narrow anything down. But when it came to mind was uh, when I I I like both the setup and a specific part. Uh, when um, I've forgotten the character's name, but when the this the slave owner was coming to to Danny, yeah, and he had to walk. Down the road of all of Danny's guards, and then come to face her with dragons and everything, and he's really kind of like being put in his place. Then we flip to Tommen on the throne, and Tywin just strolls in, walks right up, lords over him, you know, like that, that <laughs> yeah. juxtaposition of those yeah. positions of power. But then in the conversation, yeah. Tommen's petulantly complain. "What well, are they going to walk to the Tower of the Hand?" And Tommen's like. <laughs> We could have you carried. <laughs> oh,
1: with, with
3: Joffrey. With Joffrey, yeah. Oh, I said Tom, and I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. With Joffrey, when Tywin comes and yeah. lords over Joffrey, yeah. I don't know. Walked to the tower of the Hand. Look, like, we could have you carried.
2: Carried, yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: so good. Charles dance, yeah. All of Tywin's. Tywin was such a well done character on the show. Charles dance just like nailed that entire. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I hate it Entire when characters aesthetic. that are so evil and murderous are so good. The performances, I, I, I want to like him so much, but he's such a terrible person, like, yeah, it tears me. The whole show, the whole series, is a good job of doing it.
0: Okay, so we're starting to run a little short on time, so I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is uh, go through a couple of more highlights that I pulled out, and then we're going to use our last bit of time to talk about the future of Game of Thrones. would love to get Kim's opinion on that a lot has changed already since you published the book so um, I know <laughs> which, i mean it's that's the nature of it right everything in your book is about what's already happened except the last chapter which is about the future but nobody knows what's coming so that's you know right that's the one part of the book that uh, you can't po- unless you're nostradamus you can't <laughs> I know. so uh so yeah right <laughs> so you talk about and chapter 9 is called fan theories and a device of fan which was really fun to read you have a lot of uh run-throughs of different theories that didn't pan out and the fun that the uh, that the fandom has with that. That's a great aspect of Game of Thrones that a lot of shows don't have. You don't have theorizing and and, and prophecies in most styles of show, so you can't... Uh, it doesn't work as well. It's not as fun. Uh, in Chapter 10, you have a big comprehensive list of all the R plus j, L equals j hints, starting with Season 1, Episode 1, and you have six pages of that, which is awesome because it's really fun to see just how much groundwork was there and just little details, especially because if you're someone who already knows it, like if you read read the books before, you're not necessarily on the lookout for it because you already know it's there. And so you did a great job of of finding all these big and small hints um, and including, you include some of the debates and uh, fandom arguments that happened during that, which I really appreciate. So it's very much like a chronology, an accounting of what happened at the time which is great to be mm-hmm. captured for posterity. Yeah. And you point out to, like, for example, you use the R plus L equals J uh, issue, how people debated that a lot. The book book readers weren't really debating R plus L equals J, but they were debating, debating certain aspects of it. Uh, right. And you get into that, like, you talk about the, the, the reveal of the marriage. Um, yeah. Really revealing that.
1: Yeah, that was a big, like, Wait, what? Did, did they just? <laughs> did she just say that they got an annulment and a, a marriage? Did she say Ragger? <laughs> yeah. Oh God, poor poor Gilly and the Ragar, the Ragar drop. Yeah.
0: Speaking of Gilly, was like, that was fun. Speaking of Gilly, you write about uh, some stuff that most of us have no idea about, which is things that like happen behind the scenes between the the actual actors and showrunners, like Gilly getting pranked by david and dan and uh, apparently they like to prank people quite a bit and i will be mean to everyone who hasn't read the book and leave another teaser in here to say you give an example of one time where the prankers became the prankies and it's pretty glorious because personally i'm not a big fan of pranks so i like seeing pranksters getting their comeuppance and it was it was
1: fun It's fun to have the, you know, how the turntables have turned. (laughs)
0: Uh, (laughs) Yes, Michael Scott making an appearance. How the turntables, my Uh. prodigals, my my son returned. My prodigy. (laughs) We could easily just start listing office quotes if we're not careful here. So (laughs) uh, I'm quite sure um, in chapter 11, you go through the the history of Danny's relationship, the surprise of of Danny being killed by John and how... you also, you do a great job of capturing what people did think would happen at the time and how wrong we all kind of were, even though the clues were there, right? The, uh, Azor yeah. and, and this and this is just right there. but Something we were, else that you point out
3: that hadn't occurred to me is that, first of all, in general, the, the show is kind of rising with the internet, yeah. you know, like and, and, and right. the nature of streaming television. So it's kind of running concurrently with some new elements of culture, right? So, the idea that there are things like Reddit and Twitter and everyone scrutinizing and analyzing these episodes, the fact that we even can't just like go back and watch it again, you know, like 20 years ago, you couldn't just go back and watch it. I guess maybe if you recorded it on your VCR, but, um, right. But the fact that we had this big break in the last season, newer fans, you know, people who hadn't even started watching or read the books or anything, they had time to catch up. Not only on all the material, but on all the theories online and come up with their own. And every, like, the even casual viewers were suddenly pretty expert or expert.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Or like people, people really just became, people became so convinced of what they were pretty sure was going to happen. Yeah. That that was like the most contentious, I think, and like tough part of season eight was watching all of these like really elaborate and like, theories that weren't just based in like brand is the night King is its own brand of theory, but like stuff like John or Danny having something to do with defeating the night King. Like those were things that Benioff and Weiss had very intentionally threaded in to make us believe that they were going to play like a major role in that. And so, and like, and they admitted that they chose Arya because they thought it was the least expected choice. And I'm like, well, it was the least expected choice because you hadn't spent any time (laughs)
2: like
1: connecting her in any way to (laughs) these prophecies and like that sort of thing. And so, yeah, it's, I did, I tried, that was, that was a really big challenge about writing these chapters, like basically in real time was like trying to get the correct perspective on like, okay, what is, what is happening on the show? But also like what is happening to fans right now? And like, why is this conversation so intense? And like trying to, trying to help explain that or like draw new light into sort of like what was going on and what had led to the year 2019, as we know it it has (laughs) (laughs) lifted.
0: Well said. So running through a few other, uh, tidbits about the chapters chapter 13 is called hidden details it's a comprehensive collection of little bits of foreshadowing parallels nods etc there's an entry for every single episode which i really appreciate because there's so much this is a a wonderful thing we have in game of Thrones. There's so many opportunities for them to do things like that with the little little hints here in the costuming or in the songs or just uh just clever wording the window panes in the background yeah so many
3: things i feel so like people experts Yes. we're still finding new things about season one and season seven
0: or eight, you know, definitely. Yeah. Other people will really enjoy the chapter called cameos, pranks and lifelong friendships, which has the anecdote I was referring to about the prankers becoming the prankee. And I would be remiss to not mention, uh, you mentioned a lot of cam- musician cameos and we have to give a nod to the mention of Mastodon because Mastodon is here in Atlanta and <sighs> anyone who goes to metal shows in Atlanta has seen the Mastodon guys. They go to, they just show up. Hell yeah. yeah. Um, uh, also, a lot of people around Atlanta have a drunk uh, Brent Hines story. <laughs> I have two. <laughs> so, <laughs> Does that mean you're drunk or he's drunk? I was not drunk, <laughs> although it, maybe I might have a third or fourth if if I were, <laughs> you know, if I could remember them. No, but uh, and then you also have a chapter called Valor Morgulis, which is really fun. I mentioned that briefly at the beginning where you have stories of the actor's finding out how their character dies and their reaction to that, which is just really fun to see like the different ways they handle finding out about their death from some of them are like, oh, so the others are like, that's a good death. You know, <laughs> like I like how I <laughs> died or, yeah. you know, if you got to go out <laughs> or some the of
1: them, yeah, some of them were like told by fans like in the street being like, can't wait for you to
0: die. And they're like, oh no. <laughs> That's like, yeah, I think, you know, I think you wrote that one about Charles Dance, right? He's like, someone told him on the street and he's like, so he immediately okay. went to Barnes and Noble or, or Water uh, Waterstones or wherever he was. And he was like, Man, that yeah, that's a pretty good death. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Solid.
0: Yeah, I love dying on a privy. That's, wait, <laughs> that's not a good one. <laughs> I think you meant the writing was good. It's poignant, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so we got a super chat from Mora Lee with a sticker that says, you are amazing. Well, thank you, Maura. Uh, we appreciate that. And okay, so let's talk about the future of Game of Thrones. I, I pulled another quote from your book, which I think... Uh, is something that we all appreciate. Sean, in particular, I know you appreciate this line. An overwhelming adoration for A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms
3: showed how much fans cherished the emotional impact of scenes that needed no expensive CGI dragons or
0: hundreds of extras or months and months of grueling night scenes. And, well, you're right. She's totally right. Kim, you're totally right about that. I think that's a perfect statement there. However, it seems like we apparently are going to get... CGI dragons <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and and maybe hundreds and probably hundreds of extras and uh maybe not months of <laughs> ruling night scenes because i don't think there's any noteworthy night battles in the dance of dragons that i could think of or in that era but maybe they'll decide they want to film one it is miguel sapochnik after all heavily involved
1: Oh, I don't think he would ever choose to do he's that. Like, I don't want to do that again. Yeah. <laughs> again. Good
0: point. Good point. Only someone who hasn't done it would be willing to do it. It's <laughs> a regular yeah. night scenes, not grueling night scenes.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: right.
0: Instead of 55 days, just, to just like five. He's like, yeah, keep it, in, keep it single. <laughs> keep it tight. Uh, so how are you in the, like you personally and just the industry in general preparing for we'll call it round two uh, and then surely they'll almost, almost certainly surely there'll be a round three at some point in the future. And then probably around four, it's probably just the beginning for this franchise. Would you agree with that? Um, and if not, you can say what? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm personally pretty excited. Um, I, for me, anecdotally, at least speaking from like insiders point of view and, you know, I track all of our analytics and how many people are, reading stories and sharing them and whatnot. And it's like, I could tell over the summer that there was like a complete fatigue with Game of Thrones. Mm. Like our readers just stopped caring about (laughs) articles Unless, unless it was something like really major or new, but for the most part, it just felt like people really tired of like rehashing what happened mm-hmm. in Game of Thrones. Like everyone, <laughs> our readers just seem to like really want to move on. So I was, I was a little bit nervous about the prequels. Cause I was like, Oh God, or like is nobody going to watch this like prequel show or whatever. But when that news came out that they had like done a straight to series order for like the prequel, all of our, like all of our, all the articles that I wrote about that announcement and like what it probably means performed way better than any of like the Game of Thrones season eight stuff did. So that was kind of like a relief to me because I was like, Oh, okay. Like That's a bit of a we're just tired. Us, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like we're just tired of season eight of Game of Thrones, yeah. but we're not tired of this world in general. Yeah. And so that I think was like a pretty good sign. Um, and I like just kind of selfishly or personally, I was, I'm excited that we're going back to like George material like the fact that for the last 3 seasons of game of thrones i wasn't able to do you know what i was saying earlier about like be, like being that person who bridges the gap between something that's in george's book and what we're seeing on the show that was where i started with writing about game of thrones mm-hmm. and as the seasons went on i kind of lost the ability to do that because we were out of book material and i no longer was sure if like something that I was watching was like completely George's idea or is this like just a piece of it that they're making up on their own um so I'm excited to get back to the realm of being like oh here's what George has written about these characters or about this particular storyline and here's what we're seeing on the show and being able to draw those connections I'm really excited about uh diving into that method of of writing again so I'm pretty excited I don't think I don't think that we're ever going to reach like the peaks of game of Thrones viewership again. I think that inherently the audience is going to contract a little bit and become a little bit back to more of the core, like real game of Thrones obsessives and real a song of ice and fire and George R. R. Martin obsessives. But I'm totally fine with that. I mean, I think in a, in a perfect world, we get like a breaking bad, better call Saul situation where like Mm -hmm. not nearly as many people are watching better call Saul, but it's like, critically acclaimed yeah, better, I, yeah. I, I don't I don't watch it I'm just using that you as, as, <laughs> I know I know I've heard it's amazing it is, yeah. I've had I've had some other television in the last couple of years too <laughs> just on. a few just a few but I like at least from as an outsider to that fandom like that <laughs> seems to me like the ideal situation where it's like yeah. a probably smaller audience but it's a it's a much more like Enjoyable,
0: yeah. Experience and not a small audience, smaller but not small. Because, like you said, I mean, I, right. I think that's what you're saying is is true, and a lot of it's just common sense. Because <laughs> Game of Thrones is one of the most popular TV shows of all time, so expecting anything to be that big, even something of the fame franchise, is. It's just, yeah, that's just too much to expect. But also, like you said, yeah. that there's a lot of good things about that. It's, you know, yeah. you have more a fandom that's more well-educated about what's going on in general. The conversations are going to be a little higher level. The bar is raised a bit, I think. Maybe yeah. that's the way to put it. So, yeah, I also want to hear from Sean on this because a lot of our listeners haven't heard get, to hear from Sean on on early thoughts on House of Dragon. We don't have a lot of details, obviously. There's no cast to speak of yet. Uh, we do, however, have something you touched on here, and I wanted to hear from both of y'all on Blood Moon versus House of the Dragon, whether you would have preferred Blood Moon versus House of the Dragon. I'll, I'll drop my takes first, what you guys can think about what you're going to say. I uh, First of all, I want to know if you guys were surprised. Like, How surprised were you, not just you personally, Kim, but the industry about the, the how quickly things turned because as you well know it was all one day we were we we heard on a tuesday i think it was bloodman wasn't happening and then about eight hours later we got the series we got the, the news of of house of the dragon being a full series so it was like one of the craziest days in, in, the, in the, the fandom's history yeah.
3: i wonder if there was Major some pr back. person
0: somewhere who was like
3: what i can't how did this is all or if there was some <laughs> pr person somewhere and be like perfect
0: (laughs) you know we we led them perfectly like we we dropped them into a pit and then we rescued them it's like varus and illyria's plan to send westeros into chaos and then rescue it
1: (laughs) yeah i will say from from my from like the reporting side of it i think a lot of people were surprised because the the cancellation of the jane goldman show was not something that HBO officially confirmed. That was like someone, I believe it was Deadline, um, broke the news first. And a lot of people were surprised. And obviously the first thing I did was I emailed HBO and they told me that they couldn't comment on that show. And I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, there are now, like now the Hollywood Reporter is confirming it. Like all these (laughs) other outlets were confirming that it wasn't moving forward. And I was like, why are you not saying like, why can't you confirm or deny this? It was, that was very strange. And then I don't know, it's not, um, it wasn't upfront, but I think it was cause Warner media now owns HBO. Right. And so they had, they had this big conference presentation thing scheduled, but honestly, I, I've, this has been a very long year and I'm very tired. (laughs) (laughs) Almost over. I was like, it was like, you know, it was like 4.45 p.m. or whatever here on the West Coast. And I was like, oh, this Warner Media thing is happening. And they were like, announcing news about some shows and they're doing their like, HBO Max streaming service and all this stuff. And I was kind of like, Oh, okay. Like, yeah, some like little tidbits are coming out about that, but I wasn't really paying attention to it. And then all of a sudden this email arrived in my inbox because the big finale to that presentation was them announcing house of the dragon had been ordered straight to series. And so I think HBO had been Probably, and this is just conjecture, but I think that they had been planning to like make waves with this announcement that like the first prequel was officially moving forward with an entire series. Also, Miguel Sapochnik, I had forgotten that he had signed an overall deal with HBO. Like, we found that out like six or nine months ago that he was gonna be connected to only HBO projects. And I hadn't been thinking about that. And then they Mm. were like, oh, he's the co showrunner on this series. And I was like, that makes so much sense. So I think I'm assuming that HBO's plan had been to like surprise everybody with this house of the dragon show. And then kind of quietly say like, we are not moving forward with that second one, Mm. but instead their PR announcement got scooped by this, other by this reporter at deadline and so they held off on saying anything officially about it until like all of the hubbub of house of the dragon had gone down Mm -hmm. and then it was like three days later hbo finally gave me the official comment saying like no the prequel is not moving forward so yeah that was like that was whiplash central i was like (laughs) what is happening (laughs)
0: So, yeah, but I think this is overall, that's pretty good news. I mean, you guys may have different takes. A lot of people do, but I think that it's kind of what you touched on that we're getting back to something that George Ritt wrote himself. And one thing that we've been saying about your book, this whole episode, which is it's written by someone that's legitimately interested, that's a legitimate fan. And that is something that I think House of the Dragon has over the Bloodman prequel, which is uh, when fans are in charge, it's better. Um, Ryan Condal is the main is, you know, one of one of the two main showrunners for House of the Dragon. And he knows the books well, according to reports, according to people who I know who know him. They've agreed with that. One of them is T. McKella, who's one of the in the writer's room as well. And she knows the books really well. And we know that firsthand. So that sits really well with me. And what I don't know is if Jane Goldman knew the books well, for example, maybe she did. I, yeah. I just don't know. I'm not saying she didn't, but I don't know that she did. And if she didn't, then Maybe that's uh, that's kind of why I like that we're getting the one that's rooted in the source material and run by people who are big fans. And I'm not sure that Blood Moon had that. Not fully. okay.
3: so my thoughts of what a spinoff should be like going farther back when nothing had quite been settled is what I was really hoping for was Robert's Rebellion. Mm -hmm. I thought that would have been something that would keep us with characters that we know, you know what I mean? And give us more backstory and uh, apparently that's
0: why they didn't want to do it
3: right right <laughs> uh, especially because that also there's not any fantasy going on there's not like dragons or yep. a melisandre and stuff like that so right. i could also see why they want to appeal to this broad audience that wants the big action and fantastic stuff they they're gonna get the budget for whatever they want to do so going way way back i thought might be interesting because if they don't follow the books well there's not that much in the books anyway it's harder for like Hardcore fans would be upset about differences, you know, so maybe there's something there. But uh, I, I'm my overall concern is that I don't want to be too negative, but I'm just kind of suspicious because I care more about serious drama, great performances, character development. And obviously, I think most fans of Game of Thrones do also, but also a lot of fans of Game of Thrones. The thing that makes it like a huge, massive millions and millions of people watching it every week is big battles and sword fights and boobs and dragons. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's not like people who like that stuff don't like good drama also. But if you want to have this huge, massive appeal, usually the movies that went Best Picture aren't the movies that made $300 million. Usually it's different categories of stuff, you know. And so the first uh, wave, like four or five, like proposed uh, spinoffs that, uh, what's what's the term George like to follow up show, successor, successor shows, shows, successor shows? You know they were by I've got notes here because I can't remember all this. Uh, uh, Carrie Ray from The Leftovers and Mad Men. I'm like hell yeah, that's <laughs> the Game of Thrones I want to see. And Brian Helgeman did L.A. Confidential. I could that could be good. But Ryan Condole did Rampage, some big action movie or something. I'm like oh I don't know man, I'm not sure if this is the the direction In i And colony, to go. right yeah. So uh, um, I'm, I'm hesitant. Now, I think even if I'm hesitant and it's not exactly what I want, that doesn't mean it's not good or that I won't like it. Right. But knowing that there are more fans of the show and knowing that Miguel is part of it, that makes me like, oh, OK, OK, I, you know, I'll, I'll keep an open mind. So.
0: Yeah, I think those are fair um, wor- things to be worried about. One thing that that I think is a is a counter, not a counter argument, but at least a, a counter aspect is that they can't possibly Spend the money they spent on Game of Thrones on this show, unless it unless it happens to be as popular.
3: Yeah, which maybe season two they can get away with it, but not right. season one. Uh,
0: so they can't possibly just focus on dragons and stuff. They just can't for they can't afford yeah. that. There's no way they can just do lots of battle. They can do battles, but they can't do ten episodes of battles. This is that's just completely impossible. So they definitely have to have story in there. Maybe the story won't be good, but <laughs> at least the well. And I there. think.
1: My, my hope that the people in the writer's room for this show would have taken away from season eight is that as much as, as much as the, like for Benioff and Weiss and for, like you said, Sean, like the millions of fans who think that the big battles and the epic scale are the most important thing. You can have all of that and it's not going to land the same way if you haven't also done the character work that leads into that. So like I I would hope that whoever is involved with making House of the Dragon understands that like yes, you can build up to some epic you know, the dance of the dragons or some big showdown or the Targaryen civil war, but nobody's going to care about that if we don't already care about these characters and we aren't already following their journeys. And so the, the, the disappointment that I had over losing the Jane Goldman show and gaining this one was like the going from a woman led game of Thrones prequel into like back to the familiar, these are two dudes in charge of Game of Thrones, which I love Miguel Sapochnik. I adore everything that he pulled off in Game of Thrones. Um, I don't know Ryan Condal. I don't have any opinions about him other than it seems great that George is a big fan of his and George seems really excited about this, this show, which is great. Um, but I really hope that we get, Uh, a more diverse writer's room and a different set of people behind the camera we don't know Miguel Sapochnik is definitely directing the pilot but we don't know how many episodes in the whole season he's directing but I do think that like Game of Thrones especially in the later seasons would have benefited from just a more robust writer's room I think David and Dan like they got a little too used to just their own style and what they were doing and I think that that was for the worse in that case. And so I just, I'm, I'm very eager to see how they actually flesh out. Yeah. Like the cast of characters who is actually behind the scenes, the creative team and stuff. So right now I'm like pretty optimistic and just kind of like excited to learn more. Um, but I think that there's a lot of really great potential. And like you said, you kind of touched upon the Sean, like the fact that they're doing fire and blood which isn't a strict history like it's it's a biased telling of these stories because it's all from the perspective of this master. and then i'm blanking on his name the- Bill
0: Dane. well there's multiple masters and mushrooms so there's that cool right. thing can.
1: We- mushroom yeah right so so they the writers of this show are not completely beholden to like one version of events because for all we know, there's a secondary version of what happened from a different perspective or whatever. So I like that. I like that. There's all this wiggle room where we aren't going to be picking apart or fighting about the changes that they've made to stories or characters. There's so much in there Mm -hmm. that's open to their interpretation. Um, So I like, I'm excited about that aspect of it, but you know, there's a a lot
0: to mine. The writer's room thing is really big. You're right about that. Um, And we do know that there's at least two women in the writer's room this time. T. McKella, I mentioned, yeah. and then there's Claire McCaskill as Claire well.
1: Keechel. Yeah, Claire Keetchell. Sorry, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, I
0: McCaskill. I can get my names mixed up. Oh yeah, that's from Watchmen. Claire. McCaskill,
1: yeah, Watchmen. she's on Watchmen, and she was um she worked on the O.A. Part Two, okay. which came out this year that I really loved. Um, so yeah, I'm really I'm I'm already glad to know that they were at least in the like early you know breaking the story aspect and then i I hope that we get room is an improvement (laughs) right (laughs) yeah it's not just ryan condal doing exactly whatever he wants like i like that we have a lot of different opinions already and hopefully that that grows even more. So
0: yeah, yeah. Hey, we are, we're with you there. Let's, we'll just have to wait and see. It'll be really fun to go through the process. Once it starts, once we start getting casting news and trailers, we'll be all the cottage industries already prepared this time. Last time we were all like, yeah. we should start. We should be talking about this. We should be, do we need, or, <laughs> we need to get
3: drones? We need to get, we need Mr. <laughs> West Coast drones.
0: Does Insider have drones?
1: <laughs> no. You guys, not not I'm, I'm the drone. <laughs> I am the drone. Oh, you said drones. Don't send me to Northern Ireland.
0: We is. can get drums too. Yeah, boom, boom, boom. yeah, like the pace of the <laughs> show coming out. I don't know. Ramming speed. <laughs> 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 okay, well, I think that covers it for today. Thank you very much, Kim. I mean, In summary, I want to say that. Game of Thrones is a phenomenon that was more. Than, it was more than just a TV show. More obviously, more than just a book or series of books. It was a cultural phenomenon. It was. Uh, it was a funk phenomenon. A funk phenomenon. <laughs> from the people behind the characters to the memes and the fandom to the complex interplay of book and show and content and fandoms, I think you did a fantastic job of capturing it in your book here. So once more, people go out and get yourself a copy of the unofficial guide to Game of Thrones. And have fun. Thank you so it. much. You're welcome. So Kim thank you. Us, uh, I
1: mean, I love that. I love that I get to have conversations like this, and it, it it really does mean a lot that you guys like read the book and have taken the time to to talk with me about it and it's it's rad so thank you
3: you're welcome this is and we can't fun. wait to see you at ice and fire con
0: and yeah, kind of yeah. yeah
1: break, breaking news i will be at ice and fire con for the first time finally
0: hell yeah so yet another incentive for y'all to get out there ice and fire con is super fun all three of us will be there as well
3: bring dancing shoes water dancing shoes <laughs>
0: and bring your foam sword because there's going to be a foam sword fight (laughs) so tell everybody where to find you online and if you have any future projects you want to speak to um you can mention that as well
1: sure um yeah you can find me i'm on twitter at kim r renfro and you can find all my writing at insider.com uh slash author I don't know my author page is linked in my twitter bio that's the fastest way to get there I write about a lot of other like general pop culture stuff like frozen 2 I have a lot of (laughs) coverage of (laughs) if anyone just saw frozen 2 um uh but yeah I'm I'm doing all sorts of uh general tv coverage and stuff and yeah keep an eye out for prequel jazz and yeah you can pick up my book you can get it at your local library if you don't want to buy it you can ask them to get a copy you can get it at a library you can go to your local bookstore amazon barnes and noble target i think is selling them literally almost anywhere that books exist i think you should be able to hopefully find a copy yeah. and if not let me know there's also i don't know if you, i don't know how many international listeners you guys have but it's in german and Finnish oh, good. And Polish and Italian. Yeah, I think. that's good. Yeah,
0: I think I think German is our fifth most. I think it's in, in, you know English then.
1: Uh, cool. The German edition is already out, so I think you can buy it in Germany. Uh, I don't remember right. when the other ones are coming out. It's also an audiobook, so if you have Audible credits, you can listen to my book on Audible, which is pretty cool. We'll have to send so, a
0: copy yeah. to Michael Clarfeld and uh, his wife. Michael Klarfeld, did these uh, these two maps here, of course. Uh, oh,
1: rad. Yeah. Wife's watching it for the first
0: time. Yeah. And, and Michael's wife is, is watching Game of Thrones. He was so pleased that she w- was willing to continue with it. He showed her the first episode yeah. and he posted on Facebook. He's like, We're going to watch episode two. She's willing to keep going. And then she, the pace picked up. So, you know, another one it's in. Big. Another one in. Um, big test yeah so yeah <laughs> well thanks again Kim we'll see you at Ice and Fire Con and uh, we'll have a lot of fun there and we'll share stories from there for everybody who can't make it so that uh, yeah awesome people can can share in the fun but uh, let me yeah, say thank thanks you to all. everybody else too thanks for, to Ashea who was not on microphone today so it was harder to hear uh, her, her takes but uh, that's our current setup we're working on upgrading again um, but currently it's hard for her to have a microphone while we have one so that's how it is so Aww. let me offer some thanks to other people. We have another list of patrons to uh, to thank our big outro batch. Of, of...
2: <laughs> yeah, good luck, Kim. Yeah.
0: <laughs> this takes a couple minutes.
1: Uh... <laughs> I'm good. I'm, I've got my coffee. Yeah, right. I'm you loaded. get to hear
0: all our fun names, that some of which were made by me, uh, uh, more of which were made by the, pe- the people who are being named here. Lord Mark of House Joseph is the snow in Winterfell, rider of Cartho, a white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. Our peers of the realm include the mysterious Br, Hand of the King, Lord Stephen Stark, Hand of Queen Ashea, titles, titles. You know, she is known as the best, and it's accurate. Lord Jim of the, the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and fire blog is Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. And Lord Brendan Lannister is the Bloodlion, Ruler of the Castle Everroar, Warden of the South. Elite from outside the realm include Lord James Tuttle, King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet, led by Flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by Flagship Prince Daemon. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse, is the Fallborn Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest. He wields a dagger of dragonglass and the Valyrian steel blade, Red Frost. King Beyond the Walls, Sidney Jesse, uh, sent in an order to Lord James Tuttle to have his wildling shipped over to Essos and who knows what they're doing over there? Wildlings and Essos, what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go right? <laughs> well, we'll have to find out next time. Lady Sarah Connolly, the willful, is, her motto is Wit Beyond Measure is man's greatest treasure, and she is Jenny's patron. Our White Walker patrons include Aurea Flint of the Mountain Flints, captured by the Weeper only to be raised in the Valley of the Milkwater, Blue Eyes, and Bolden Memories. Alexander Greyblood, first of the first men. Now crowned in ice, called Silent Springer, Woodblinder, and the Snow of Night, wielder of the iced, forged Greatsword Pale Frost. Our Blood Rider patrons include Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian Seal Arak with a dragonbone hilt, Kohol called Sun Piercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow, Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire Whip gehenna. I was supposed to read those names at the halfway point. I forgot, it's been a while since I've read these. Also, I was supposed to read The Queen of Love and Beauty at half at, at halftime? almost called it halftime. <laughs> halftime? What is this? Sporting this is event. So, from the depths of Fleabottom, Lord Carry, Lord Ken—I've done that before. Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from beyond the Wall, and a Laurel of Glory in the name of Love to Bud of House Beresford, Knight of Tolkien, and Arbiter of Scotch, from Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jamison.
2: Oh, I know, right? He's <laughs> the
0: Queen of Love and Yeah, yeah. She named him the Queen of Love and Beauty. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Our small council includes Lord Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, Grand Maester of Via James, Lord Dungeon of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Lord Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Green Shield, Master of Coin, and Lord Johan of Har- 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 <laughs> House Orcos, called Shadowhawk, Master of Whispers. Our lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Diarlas of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bellbreaker of the Second Stone, Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is a guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, uh, Lady of <coughs> Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valerian steel machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of Donhold. Lord Bemmy Snuggle Bunny is guardian ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood. Dual wielder of Valerian short swords, Glorious Morning and Little Light Wise. Sharpshooter of the Werewood and Ironwood, laminated longbow. Todd von Oben. When you fear things cannot get worse. Snuggle Bunny enters the fray. The bastard of the Wolf's Wood is first forester of the old gods, sworn to house Ironwarewood. Listen for the silence. Lady Lyanna Kelly of Wolf Island is protectress of the Steelhold. Casey Stark is of House Acres. Lady Kay of House Archer is Lady of Earth Dog Hall, Huntress of the Wolf's Wood, and Guardian of Maddie Squirrels Bane the Mighty Direweenie. Lady Raywin of House Dilsdane is the Star Spear. Peter Rivers is the pale dragon and heir to Bloodraven. And Lady Carlin Carey of Castle Stone Sharp, whose horse is shod in Valyrian steel, is Lady Rider of the Rising Hills. Our King's you know, if Just- anyone ever wants to write Ice and Fire fan fiction, we've laid some groundwork here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all the characters are named already. <laughs> Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian steel blade, Fate. Our Queen's High Council includes Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whispers, Rebea Eyes, Lady of Waves, and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadowcot. In the shadows we bear our claws. Catrin the Wise of House Trondheim is Master of Coin. Great Grandmaester Ma- Grand M. Elizabeth is middle daughter of Lyanna Mormont, First Lady to Forge both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Link. And Laura Boros is the Lady of Infinity, Master of Laws. Our Kingsguard includes Lord Commander Miriam R. And backed up by Sir Glennon of House Leanne, called Lioncloak, our longest tenured white sword. Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star. Sir Jord of House Pepsi, the Beverage Knight. Gregor Snow, called Snowbear, a Bastard of Winterfell. Sir Jen Seaworth, Knight of the Southern Snows. And Lisa, Red Water Witch of Dorne. The Red Wedding Band is led by Sir Newt of the Rock, lead lootist, wielding a weirwood loot with Valyrian steel strings. Our Queen's Guard is led by Lord Captain Commander Hema helmet the Cell Sentinel, backed up by Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Dune. I must not fear; fear is the mind killer. Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Sir Leon of House Walker, wielder of the v- twin Valyrian steel blades, Fire and Ice, and the Werewood Bow Rain. Amber, the adamant, the Knight of the Mist, and Mother of Squids. The Wintery Wolverine. We finish what you begin. And Nora Neko, uh, the Beard Guard. Lord Commander George the Golden, Sir Joshua
3: Oakheart, the White Oak, very special Lady Rita of the Copper Main, the Unbound, Williams. Dance the Fervor, <laughs> Sir Joff, Warden of the AC, Wilder of Triad, the multifaceted beard of platinum, red, and brown, Stay Frosty, Sir Tim Corgyle, Mad Boy of the Western Desert.
0: Yeah, and a few other names that are worthy of mention. We have Lady Kelly, mistress of the old Bay of Crabs. Uh, Ricky Alebelly Belly of House Bell, motto Ring the Bell. And certainly last, but not certainly least, are our members of the Knights How Watch. Lord Commander Benjamin Umber is the silent giant wielder of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword, Winter's Kiss. And he is backed up by First Builder Magor Snow, aka Megor the Cool, the Fire in the Snow. And First Ranger Source Delica of House Gramercy. Thanks also to Michael Clarfeld for the maps, to Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal and Kevin McLeod for our various music pieces that we use. And thanks to everyone who has liked and shared and told their friends about History of Westeros. We'll be back in eight days with the next installment of Valar Rereadus and with future episodes coming the rest of the year and into 2020. We can't wait to see what the fandom has coming and we'll be continuing with, with our reread in the meantime. Thanks again to Kim. Uh, for coming and for listening to all our fun credits, there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you for having me. It was a delight. Cool. Yeah, it gave me time to to chat. Finally, in the I'm ter- I can't like talk to people and watch people and chat and read a Google Doc. I'm I have not mastered that skill yet. So I'm very impressed with you guys. Uh, <laughs> well, so thank you. We
0: have a Shea helping, that she's yeah. actually doing all that. <laughs>
1: that hero her- of hero the of camera. the stream.
0: <laughs> when Ashea is not on camera, she has like eight arms that are just <laughs> going like, and then several sets of eyes, like IG 11 was like, two, looking but Yeah, no. Sometimes
1: I am yeah. reading the chat, and then Aziz like says something, and I don't quite hear everything he says. So I chime in. He's like, that's not what I was talking about.
2: (laughs) (laughs)
3: It is hard to multitask what you're saying and what you're reading and what you're listening to all at the same time.
0: It is impressive. So double thanks, triple thanks to Ashea, who is the best. Okay, so, yeah, we'll see you at Ice and Fire Con and hopefully uh, a lot of other y'all will see there as well. And until next time, everybody, Valar reread